friends welcome to the matt townsend show i am your host dr matt townsend your coach your guide on the side welcome to the program my friends this is the show where we give you the tools to have a better life stronger love and better leadership all around that's how we run this show day in day out three hours a day never ending information some of it's even valuable isn't it, James? Yes, it is. You made it today. Yes, miracle. And you were early. You were way early. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I don't know. I, I was listening to Hans Zimmer this morning, so I walked a lot yes. faster. It's a lot easier to walk to work when yeah. you're listening to Batman. Yeah, because you you almost either feel like Batman or you need to run like from the Joker. Well, with the, how the music progresses, I feel like I was yeah. walking, then I started walking faster, yeah. and then I started like running. And See, all Hans Zimmer building. music, you it starts so slow yep. and quiet. So I can just see you like just leaving your house, just quietly shutting your door, just quiet, slowly. Like mm-hmm. it probably took you like four minutes just to get out of your driveway. Yeah, a couple minutes to shut the door, <laughs> and yeah, it took a while. But then you, it builds up. And crescendos until you're just sprinting. Because when you passed my office, holy cow, you were panting. And I was like yelling with this like deep guttural, you know, yes. like raspy voice. And you were throwing your arms as you were running like they were like you were about a three-year-old. Yeah. Going for cookies. Calling out for Rachel. And just like, who? Who's Rachel? I don't even know. Watch the movie. Okay. Is that is that a Batman yes. reference? Rachel! I he's thought like, that was He's trying to do the, the whole I'm Batman. Adrian! <laughs> I don't know. I've got to get more into movies. <sighs> Welcome to the show, everybody. This is the. This is going to be a great show. Well, you know what we're going to do today? Talk. You may not even know, Terry. I just work here. I have no idea. We are, we are... I just put the entire schedule together. I have no concept. <laughs> <laughs> you just run a team of I six people. Take pair. Nah, no uh, here's the deal. We... We've got an advertising executive. He's actually a friend of mine, but he is a stud. Super Bowl creator. He's made Super Bowl ads, and he's just incredibly good at what he does. And we've I've given him a curveball. I've thrown this man a curve. So this is a guy that can put together advertisements that go in the Super Bowl, millions of dollars, and I've asked him to critique in in a professional way ISIS and their marketing. And honestly, it scared him to death because he, he's like, I don't want to make any mad, anybody mad. He's so good, though. So he's we're just going to pick his brain. What does a professional ad guy think of what ISIS is doing? Because, folks, they're pretty good at what they're doing. They, in fact, other uh, experts believe they could probably win awards for their magazines, for a lot of their media, if they, you know, if they were able to go to an awards ceremony. They have a talk show. Do they really? It's called Lend Me Your Ears. Oh, see, and that, the scary thing about that is they'll actually cut your ears off. It's not what they do, but so the, I think what they figured out is they have a lot of hostages that are journalists. Yeah. So they just have them host their own show <laughs> where they discuss issues of the day Yeah. and plead for their lives. Yeah. It's one of those shows. 
You know, there's you four know episodes what? apparently. I, honestly, if you've ever watched a Jerry Springer show, right? It's not far from that. No, captured people. So they're they're using all forms of multimedia, printing, everything, trying Incredible. to uh, spread this. And, and what I want to get into message. too is they also have a message that that's moving people, but it's it's kind of a message you just can't you can't just do an anti message to it. You have to actually somehow go capture the hearts of the people they're capturing. I mean, the the, the minds that they're grabbing because they're recruiting like crazy. But those people that are actually being moved by an emotional message. And if you just say, just don't do that, it's not going to be enough. And anyway, we'll get into that today. We've got that. We've, we're going to talk about the impact of pornography on kids. Did, basically, did you know that by the time your kid's 18 years old, your child will have seen and and been affected by pornography? We'll get into that as well. Also, do you know a narcissist, somebody that is so self-absorbed that everything is about them? Are you living with them? Are you working with them? Why, Jay? Oh, 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 oh. What? You guys. <laughs> that was rude. What? I was just talking to James. It was no, I saw signals. finger pointing and Well, stuff. it was just at you. Yeah, but. And your narcissistic ways. <laughs> tendencies. We're going to actually tell you what narcissism is because it's a clinical oh. diagnosis that I do not have. Sorry. I'm borderline personality, but I'm not a narcissist. Speaking of narcissists, yeah. there's a uh, congressman from Illinois that has resigned yes. who decorated his office like Downton Abbey and yeah. spent all kinds of money Incredible going to decorator. concerts and games. And yeah. Aaron Shock is his name. Shock. He was on the cover of Men's Fitness because, man, he's got some, some abs. Does he? He has a, a workout regiment that he likes. The congressman's workout. Yeah, that's right. He had a big workout, yeah. He... Uh, Let's see here. Downton Abbey-themed office. Now, I saw yesterday on CBS News, they sent one of their uh, reporters into his office to see if he was there. I thought it was kind of overblown, the whole Downton Abbey thing. Yeah. It's the outer office. You open the door in there, and his receptionist is sitting in Downton Abbey. It's not just his office. It's the outer office. It's the Are whole— It's crazy. Whoever's going to take his spot has to go in and just rip the whole thing out now. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. He expensed 170,000 miles on his personal vehicle, but then sold it with only 80,000 miles on it. Wow. Those are some of the uh, issues. He uh, it says that means he was bill- billing taxpayers for 90,000 miles he never drove. Today, so he announces his resignation. Um, he says, the constant questions over the last six weeks have proved a great distraction that made it too difficult for me to serve the people of the 18th District of Illinois, which is high standards. And they deserve which I uh, the standards he has set for himself. He can't continue in this position. Well, you know what I think it is, but this is why it's perfect to have an ad executive with us today. Because if you just go Google Congressman Aaron Schock, S C H O C K, and then just look at his images, yeah. he's got another career going. He's a model. He's going to be a model. His shirts off. He's, he's probably going to be. Out. You'll see him on Down, Downton Abbey. Yeah. Downton Abbey. Downton. 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 I've never even watched that show. That's all right. Is it? I have never been more caught up with the help of a house ever before. But I heard it made you cry. Nah. Don't cry. I told you that yesterday. There's That's no true. tears. Hey, you know what I think happened with his miles? It's dog miles. You Is know that, how one one year equals like seven years in dog years? That would probably work out one mathematically. M- congressman's mile equals seven miles. In it's regular. either that or fraud. Either way. Uh, I think dog miles is a better interpretation. Apparently, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh-huh. won election. Crazy came town. Came from behind. 
can figure well, this out. Well, it depends out. on the headline. He either came from behind to win or he destroyed his opponent. Well, either way. I heard, he, I heard he killed it. So what was all the talk that he may lose? It was really close. I think it's a media the poll- conspiracy. The polling was really close until okay. they counted the votes, and then he won comfortably. Well, he won, like, very comfortably. But what they're saying is it looked as if uh, he rallied. On the last day. Well, it's because he people, changed his position. Well, he changed his position, yeah. You know, when in doubt, change the position. Absolutely. Or shock it out. And then you get back into office and you, you know, I've changed my mind on some things. And who cares? You're well, in you office. Got, well, you can't change your mind. Yeah, so with nearly 99% of ballots counted, he used a virtual certain to form a new government and become their longest serving prime minister for a, a, taking, what, a fourth term. Yeah, I listened to the White House. The, the White House had a comment on it, which was basically... Again, we have a long-standing yeah. relationship with Israel. I heard this morning. Like, they could barely contain their excitement. We cannot wait to talk to the new <laughs> government. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, man. Can't we just get along? Speaking of the White House, yeah, the uh, newly installed Secret Service Director, Joseph Clancy, went before the House Appropriations Committee oh, on Tuesday. Oh, I bet that was fun. He asked for $8 million to build a replica of the White House for training purposes. Are you kidding? No. Eight million bucks Eight to million build a bucks. replica of the White House. Yeah, he goes, Secret Service agents have come under fire recently for a series of embarrassing blunders involving the White House, right. the perimeter, and security. Drunk driving through crime scenes at the White House. He says, right now we're training in a parking lot, basically. We put up makeshift fences and walk off the distance between the fence and the White House and the actual house itself. They want to have bushes and fountains and shrubbery and all that kind of stuff so they can really train and know their, their territory when they're out there on the grounds of the White House. Well... Can't we train at the White House? I mean, Probably not. Not well, not to the extent and well, level I mean, they want to. Well, yeah. You, come on. When I was a kid, we'd just play cops and robbers. Yeah. And you just run around the front yard. But they want something that's built to scale. Yeah. So when they put their people in that situation, it's like they've already been there. I, I appreciate that. But $8 million bucks so they and, can build a replica White House. Come on. Imagination. That's why God gave us an imagination. It was Use a, it. It was a busy day at the White House. What? Someone sent a envelope full of cyanide. That's a big deal. The uh, did they the, catch it? The the first test was that it was for cyanide. It's going to more testing is going to happen okay. to confirm yeah. further. The envelope discovered at the White House mail screening center was first returned with a negative result for biological testing. When testing for chemicals on Tuesday, the result came back positive for cyanide. <laughs> the substance reportedly inside a plastic bag in an envelope. Uh, said sources to ABC News, this, the sender is known to the Secret Service and will face potential charges, pending the result of the second test. Did it have like a skull and crossbones on it? That's how it works in the cartoons. That's right. Always let you know that it's poison. That was a dead giveaway. This seemed a little fishy when we first saw the skull and crossbones. <laughs> then when all the powder poured out of the packet. did I, I bet you their mail for the White House is actually not on the... No, White House it's a property. different location. It's Which probably the same the thing $8 with million dollar facility. Yeah, the, it's next the mock, to the, the, the mock White House, yes. Hmm. Yeah, they have a facility off off location so the Congress and everyone goes through the same screening processes. Oh, wow. There's got to be a set somewhere. Isn't there a set of the White House? Just I, go use that. Go to well, Aaron Schock's office, for heaven's sakes. They got to have that West Wing yeah. set somewhere, right? Go back right? to the old West Wing down? set. <laughs> Not a big deal. See, we could solve all of the problems in the world if they would just let the Matt Townsend Show do that. We're going to take a break. When we come back, our ad executive, Jeff Bagley, is going to be joining us. Uh, great friend and a uh, very knowledgeable man. We're going to kind of 
you know, pick through all of the advertising used by ISIS, all their different methods. And we're going to be filled in by Jeff to find out what uh, what they're doing right and what we should do to combat it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, have you ever heard of ISIS? It's a... Uh, it's this incredible new brand out of the Middle East that's uh, apparently taking charge. Um, it's recruiting people. And if this were a company, we would all sit back and be amazed at the work they're doing. Instead, we, are, we have to go to war and try to stop ISIS. But one of the things I'm not sure we're probably even uh, you know, doing very well is trying to figure out how do you stop, uh, how do you stop the branding of a terrorist organization. One of the things that is that is happening with ISIS is and it's it's it really is um, an, an interesting kind of study. In fact, Yahoo.com did an entire article on Terror Inc., how the Islamic State has become a branding behemoth. And um, you've seen it. You've heard about the, the really high quality videos that they're putting out. And, uh, you know, they have logos they have. They're running it basically with branches, with uh, kind of a centralized decision-making, except you can also go out and little, uh, you know, break-off groups can have their own type of branding that, that is, runs parallel to the, the national group. High, high, high-tech, lots of skills behind it, lots of media nuance and prowess. So we wanted to bring in an expert that could help us, and I'm thinking, okay, so who do I know that understands advertising, marketing, well enough. Now, again, let's be clear, and he he wants to be very clear. He's not an expert on ISIS. No. Jeff Bagley's his name. Right now he works for the University of Utah as their creative director in marketing and communications. However, Jeff also was a partner and executive creative director for a huge national uh, international um, firm, Euro RSCG which was DSW Partners many years. He was there for 15 years. Super Bowl commercials you've done? Right. For mm-hmm. Intel. If you remember back in the day, they were in the silver suits. Is that right? The bunny suits. Do you remember the bunny the suits? clean suits, yeah, from the the uh, the, uh, the fabs that uh, you know, where they manufactured. Yeah, they had to go into the, the clean mm-hmm. suits. Yeah. Uh, I Omega as well. Right. But you, uh, how many ads? Zip drive and the jazz drive. Do you and, remember the yeah, zip drive? That's right. Holy cow. Yeah. I haven't thought of that word forever. Zip drive. But I remember being with you on Sunday. We had Super Bowl ads playing, and you're like, not going to go watch them because it was on Sunday. Now, you know what? You probably didn't want me to tell people that. But <laughs> how cool is that? The guy that created these Super Bowl ads, millions of dollars being spent, and Jeff's not going to go watch them. Well, I did have an assignment at that time that uh, precluded me from from watching them, and well, uh, so I did tape them, so I got to see them well, you in also, the game. You probably were at the commercial shoot, so you've seen, <laughs> yeah, it. and you probably edited it. Yeah. Um, Bagley, help me here. Jeff Bagley's his name, and uh, ISIS. Just as you look at what they're doing, just give me your gut. Overall, I mean, they're into social media. They're on Twitter. They're on Vine. They're on YouTube. They're producing top-notch video. They have magazines. What do you see just as an ad executive? Well, I think it's important, first of all, to sort of understand what a 
what a brand is. Yeah. Um, a brand is not a logo. Brand is not a television commercial. It's not a print ad. Um, a brand is what exists in the minds of your consumers. It's their impression of you. That's the brand. That's the brand. And so it is the sum total of your logo, your ads, your even the way you answer the phone at your business yeah. or whatever contributes to building a brand in the side, inside the minds of your consumers. So um, ISIS has been very effective in creating an image. Yeah. I hate to almost um, give them the legitimacy of calling it a brand. It's a, it's it's a, a cause. Yeah. It's a um, – you know, it's it's a message that they are propagating out there, um, and they've certainly been very effective in getting it out there in a really quick. I mean, it's in quick way. Everyone's heard of ISIS, right? And it's scary. Yeah, but two years ago, you probably never even heard of them. That's right. Isn't so? So really, I mean, to me, that is the point. We people, everyone seems to have heard of them, and they're terrorizing. It's right. scary. So mission accomplished. Yeah, but we were discussing uh, with some colleagues of mine the other day, is it easier to um, propagate a negative brand versus a positive brand? Yeah, like a a bonded positive brand. Yeah, a real company, a real product, a real service. Um, What what, what did you guys decide? Well, we think it's absolutely much easier to propagate a negative uh, brand. Yeah. Um, Well, 10 videos. But because you can show sort of these shocking – um, just disgusting, horrendous. Th- horrendous things. Yeah, and and people have this period interest to to watch and to see. Yeah, um, and it shocks them, and it's advanced their cause or advanced the idea of what they're doing in a very quick way. Well, and it seems like too, I guess too, you can get the president of the free world to comment on you a lot easier. You know, you go kidnap two hundred Christians. And kill him. Everyone's talking, right? And and even he, you know, admitted that they had underestimated, yeah, uh, ISIS and their their strength, their resources, all those things. And so, it, it appears that uh, um, our government, as well as others, are playing catch up now. Yeah. Well, and I wonder, how do you? I mean, it's interesting. A government. How often does a government ever have to really fight a brand? You know what I mean? So it's like we fought the brand. I mean it fought like a, th- a thought like communism. It's hard for a government to beat communism because it's a concept. It's a theory. So part of the brand of ISIS that's generating recruiting is a theory. It's a, it's a belief set. Right. It's not – you're not selling widgets. So they have to actually do two things. They you – know, you know, the positive countries in the world need to – uh, control their ground offensive. Right. We need, to, we need to fight that. But we also have to figure out a way to dull the impact of their social media. Yeah, their messaging. Yeah. And um, that is so much less controllable than oh, it used to be. Yeah. I mean, you could simply shut down a television station. Yeah, back in the day, there was three. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, or keep them, you know, from putting a, a print ad in a magazine. But because... Um, the democracy, you know, democracy of, of social media, it can just – anybody can do it. Anybody can put it out there and mm. it can and gain uh, strength and uh, power just by the, the sheer weight of how much people are doing it. I mean that is one thing they're doing is they, you know, they have 
they have the ability and a network to get uh, like 90,000 tweets out. So they'll post a new video and they can immediately get it into a network of about 90,000 Twitter followers, which, by the way, the government keeps trying to shut down. But the minute they shut it down, they immediately transfer it to a new one and they transfer it to a new one and they transfer it to a new one. So then all of a sudden these videos can go viral. And then the virility, which is a whole other thing, which, again, is about democracy. So the irony of this is they're using democracy to perpetuate their messaging. And we are trying to stop the message. Something about their messaging is so attractive that it's it's not just beheadings they're showing. They're also trying to lure these kids by showing them playing video games, well, eating pizza. Yeah, but I think – I think the power of their messaging to uh, young people is that right now they are the pirates. Yeah, the renegade. They're the renegades. And there's always some sort of uh, you know romantic notion of being the pirates. Yeah. Um, even though within their ideology set, um, I don't think they would allow for a lot of freedom. Yeah, there's probably not <laughs> a lot of video game playing once you're out in the field. <laughs> um, but that's, I think, what is drawing some, you know, disenfranchised youth or whatever because they see them being associated with this renegade group. They even have a black flag, you know yeah, what I mean, when yeah. you think about it. Oh, yeah. Um, it doesn't have a skull and crossbones on it, but it's... Yeah. And so there's an image of this renegade kind of... Uh, well, it's like the bikers. I mean, uh, who were the Hells Angels? All these biker groups used to be so attractive, like in the 70s, that, I mean, it's probably targeting the same group. Mm-hmm. And by the way, probably a group that's sitting home bored waiting to be messaged, you know, waiting for information. Or they, you know, they in some ways in their lives have, have been bullied or whatever or felt on the outside and, and here's a group that's now going to um, accept include them, them, include them, yeah. and give them, uh, you know, a family per se and colleagues. And colors and, to and, wear. And colors and a, and a cause to, to be a part of. So that's the cause side of it. Let's let's do this. We're talking with Jeff Bagley, who is a friend, but also creative director at the University of Utah Marketing and Communications Department. He's also been a big ad executive in his history. He seems like he's a really he should be an old man with all of the experience he has, but he's just a just a young punk. Um, also, by the way, he's put together two or three uh, Super Bowl ads commercials. And so he knows what he's talking about, friends. We're going to come back more with Jeff Bagley. And I want to talk about the cause side of this and then just get into some of the techniques they're using and see, you know, what they're what they're doing. And then hopefully see if we can't come up with something for what we do. What do you do with a cause? How do you go to war with a cause? This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to Brigham Young University's BYU Radio right here on Sirius XM 143. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Right now we're exploring the the, the topic of ISIS and uh, their incredible savvy, their branding savvy, their market messaging. I mean, their media usage. They're putting out, like, high-quality, high-def video that um, I'm assuming would take some some pretty good skills uh, joining us is Jeff Bagley, a friend of mine, but more importantly, 
uh, an ad executive, somebody that's been in big time, you know, ad agencies creating real true marketing materials to influence audiences. Some of his past clients have been iOmega and Intel. He's created uh, um, Super Bowl commercials for Intel. You will have seen him, all of those old bunny suit, silver bunny suit Intel commercials back in the day. Those were all, uh, you know, squeezed out of Jeff's brain. <laughs> but Jeff Bagley, thanks for joining us. It's not, good to be here. Not an ISIS expert. No. But an ad expert. But the deal is... I mean, what does it take to go put together high quality commercial or tell I mean, their ads as well as videos of terroristic acts, as well as all of this branding? I'm assuming these people are probably educated. Oh, absolutely. Trained. Yeah. These aren't just a bunch of guys running around in the middle of the desert. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also with with how technology and even camera equipment has changed over the years. It's it's uh, you can produce higher quality uh, images today. With an you, iPhone, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, back in the earlier days, you, you know, if it wasn't, wasn't on film, yeah. it was really bad video, and it looked bad, like, you know, low-end, low-produced type stuff. But now with digital SLRs and things, you can actually produce a really high-end-looking image Yeah. Uh, without a lot of money or even sometimes a lot of expertise. Yeah. Um, so... They've been able to put that together. But then they, they can put together, I mean, a message. They're getting, it seems like, the messaging of their cause right. And yeah. it also seems that they know their audience because I guess that's part of it too. Like you're saying, if a brand exists in the mind of your consumers, you've got to know who your consumer is, I guess, right? Yeah, For and, recruiting. And, and they're obviously you know recruiting younger people. And one thing we know about millennials is that they – they like companies that have that are attached to a cause, yeah. Um, and so they're not just selling you a pair of shoes, but they'll donate part yeah. of the portion of the cost of those shoes to buy shoes for somebody else. Um, you buy a bag, and they'll they'll put food into it for another person. So I mean, they like they like companies that have you know causes and yeah. messages attached to them, and so certainly. ISIS is a cause. It, it, it has, a, has a, a very negative message attached to it, but it's a cause nonetheless. Do you sense it's easier to sell uh, that cause than it would be to sell a widget? Yeah. I mean, I think, like I said, we talked earlier uh, with some colleagues of mine that it's probably easier to sell a negative cause mm -hmm. than it is to sell a positive cause. Are they selling two causes, it seems like? Like a negative cause is terrorism, which is kind of way easy because you just got to do bad stuff. But then they have to also sell the message that is more positive and alluring to that kid they're trying to get out of New Zealand to come be part of the team. Or is it the same messaging? You tell me. Well, I think they've done a couple of things and, and they've shown some normalcy in their life there. And, and I think they do that because they don't want to be just simply one dimensional yeah that they're just terrorists um <laughs> or they're just warriors we have family life <laughs> yeah um and so they want to show that there there is some dimension to what their society of their of their hope of their society yeah. is going to be now i understand that that isis um whereas most sort of brutal regimes tend to hide their atrocities ISIS has done the exact opposite. Put them out there. Yeah, put them out there, and which obviously has 
um, rapidly increase their their awareness of who they are, their name, what have you, and their cause. Um, but their goal is is not necessarily to make friends. Their goal is to bring about you know Destruction. Arm- Armageddon. Yeah, they want people to be pissed off enough. Yeah, um, to fight. Well, maybe that's it. I mean, they want a caliphate. They they want uh they want a country that is Islamically ruled, righteous, clean. So interestingly, that is part of the cause. I mean, you know what I mean? So all of a sudden, these disenfranchised people all over the world get the message. They can go, by the way, where they tend to be going isn't – they just they do go to Vine. They do go to YouTube. They can customize their messaging there. They can get people to subscribe. But they also go to other websites like ask.com and all of these ones where they're kind of just message boards and you can talk and ask questions. They even ask their – their warriors, the jihadists, to go and actually use social media to talk to people and tell them their stories. So, what's that called? Well, the the one thing that that they're doing that you know, and you hate again to like legitimize yeah. this by saying, okay, they're a brand. This is what other brands right. should be doing. Do. We shouldn't be learning from yeah from this from ISIS. Yeah, except like we do have to combat it. Yeah, but they, you know, you scream loud enough, long enough, <laughs> someone's going to hear you. That's right. And consistency is one of the the hallmarks of good marketing. You've got to be consistent. You can't just put one message out there and hope it's going to change the world and, and uh, you know, a flock of consumers are going to be beaten on your door. You have to keep pounding, t- it. pounding that message over and over and over again. Yeah. And they're doing that. They keep putting it out there and they've got a legion of, of folks that are pushing out tweets and they're consistently doing They're having a conversation. And social media is the new word of mouth. Yeah. And so as you continue to have that conversation, you're going to continue to be top of mind and you're going to and you're going to gain that mind share that you that you need and want. The minute you stop talking, <laughs> it goes away. It goes away. Yeah, it goes away. And and they're not letting that go away. They keep talking and they've got a lot of people talking with them and for them. And and any brand would love to have what we call brand evangelists, people who are so um, loyal to your brand, so um, enamored with what you do, whether it's a product you make or a service you provide, that they become a voice for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and they blog about your brand. They talk about it. They yeah. create user groups, what have you. And, yeah, word of mouth can mm-hmm. spread it. And it's a third-party endorsement. Yeah, and those are far more powerful than actually coming from the the company or the brand itself. And they might not even have to go to war for you, but they might be the wife of somebody who they just sent to war. So yeah. and now all of a sudden they have you know it's multi generational and and also I guess this is this isn't just they're not just this is nationwide this is worldwide. You can find you can find a, a pocket of like minded people in every country. So you just start reaching all of these different, you know, global pockets. And, and and they I guess are very sophisticated and they have, you know, they've translated their messages in, in you know yeah, six, languages seven, eight, across yeah. the across the world so that they can target people in all over the world. We had an expert on talking about ISIS as terrorists and their his the biggest threat is going to be the local kind of rogue lone wolf type of thing. And this is a Kind of an idyllic model to get the doctrine to their into their minds, and lone wolf it. Yeah. So I mean, that's the scary, scary side of this. 
Um, they also use a weird idea. Have you heard of um, – I, I think it's called like native native advertising or where they, they'll put in like a top ten facts everyone should know about ISIS. And it looks like, oh, okay. It's coming from a legitimate source. Yeah, but in reality it's coming from ISIS. And number seven of the top ten is did you know that you'll get $700 if you get married and you are a member of ISIS? No, I didn't know that. So now there's a revenue. So it's just this – it seems like normal. And then even some of the websites they put together, they're using the right, the same coloring. They're using the same – they're trying to make it look like legitimate news sources. Do you think some of these people don't even know how contrived some of this is? I mean a lot of us don't know how contrived our ad world is on social media. Do you think some people are being duped into it? Well, I mean – Absolutely, and and there are certainly lots of people out there on the internet that, internet that are duping, getting duped at yeah, left and right, and, and identity theft, and and so those things happen, and people are sucked in by all kinds of of things. Yeah, um, and if they are packaging up their messaging in, in what appears to be um, a legitimate source, um, it certainly makes those kinds of messages easier for people to believe. Yeah, what do you do so? Let's say you were called in or your team and you, you were asked to grow the, the, a great team together to combat this. Where would you begin? What should the U.S. government – not like you're going to want to tell the U.S. government what to do, <laughs> but you probably should. What, what – where do we begin to combat a cause-driven marketing approach like this? Well, I think what they've done is they've, they have established an image – and I think for some of these people that are, that go over there, it's a it's the pirate image. It's yeah, the sort of art, being the, yeah. the, the running game and stuff like that. And so I think perhaps a place to start would be um, combating the perception of what their life is going to be like with what the reality of their life is really going to be like. Hmm. Um, the uh, um, the reality of being in 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 harm's way, the, the war, um, the control that they're going to be under. Um, the fact that they're not going to have freedoms and they're going to be told what to do, when to do it, where to do it. Yeah. Um, and in contrast to a life of freedom, a life with agency, if you yeah. will. Yeah. Um, and I think that would be the, the contrast to make um, and do it. You got to do it in, a, in an emotionally powerful way. Um, there's an old average, adage in advertising. You make them laugh, you make them cry mm. and you'll win their wallet. And you've got to you've got to hit people right. in their hearts, yeah. and you've got to make the notion of, uh, of freedom um, and all of that gives people far more attractive because mm-hmm. it might far be... more valuable than than a, a life of oppression. That's right. Well, and they're, they, maybe they're saying, "Well, I don't need the freedom if it feels this bad." You know what I mean? If I if I'm rejected, if I'm ostracized, but. Like you're saying, just show them what it looks like to be ostracized in Syria. <laughs> you know right. What I mean? And to – I mean you're, I, you see all these kids and stories of kids going from Canada to Minneapolis to Syria and you're thinking, what? Do you not know what that's going to be like? Just think that through. But really I guess they don't know because how would they know that? They've only been – taught what they've been taught. Right. And they all they have is a perception and an image that ISIS has been able to 
create in the minds of these of these people. Do, do we do we even know? I, I mean, when we had to combat Hitler, when we had to combat communism, we took on a we took on their theory, we took on their cause, but. It almost seems like this is a new kind of a war, right? This is an ad war, really. Well, that needs to be waged. Yeah, with 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 Hitler and with communism, we didn't have the media, That's and true. they didn't have the media tools. That's true. They could just write Mein Kampf and get that out. And yeah, I mean, people buy the book. There, you know, there wasn't really television stations right. so much in, in obviously World War II. They right, just was radio and whatnot, and and only a certain few people had control. Yeah, over those media outlets, and we have. Lost control, yeah. Um, yeah, of the media and the world. Well, the, the government has to go to businesses, Twitter, to shut down accounts, and so Twitter has to decide: is this good for business? I mean, it's good for America. Is it? I mean, that's that's a step we've never had to have. I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, the democratizing of a whole media world is, has both a good side, yeah, because um, it allows more people to have a voice. But obviously, there's a negative side to it as well, um, and with very desperate type folks having a voice as well, and, and just as equal of a voice, really. Yeah, I mean, because again, it's the president could get up there and say something, but he's not necessarily going to reach. In, in some respects, they have more than an equal uh, share of voice because they're willing to put a beheading on a video and put it out That's there, right. and it's just. So wildly, you know, intoxicating. I guess to see something like right. this that you know people can't help but but look, or it's just so shocking they mm-hmm. can't believe they're doing this. And it seems like it also has to be almost a proactive thing. Like, um, I mean, I'm just trying to think who in in this war, who in NATO, who in the U.S. government's purpose is to go start creating ad messages to combat. This it it just doesn't seem like that would exist. Well, they they have done some of it. Have they? Yeah, they have done some. They, there was uh, not too long ago that the U.S. government put out a an anti you know terrorism ISIS kind of film and showed some of the reality of of. So that's it. So you just almost have to get that spread more widely, right? Yeah, and do it consistently. Consistently, and I don't think I think that's the key. That's, that's not the, happening. Yeah. yeah, you'll hear the president come out and say. One thing, and then maybe show the ad, and then it dies. Yeah, but you got to keep. They need, they need to keep putting messages out there over and over again for yeah. every. Yeah, it's for every, you know, video they put out. We got to put out one. It's almost like it needs to be. It's a, it's a it's a war just like the ground war. Yeah, and it's just it's like the just say no campaign. It's got to be almost that prevalent in a way that it's you're hearing it as much as you used to hear just say no to drugs. Yeah, but it's got to be uh, more, more powerful, more yeah. emotional. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because yeah, that kind of laid flat, didn't it? Right. But, oh, it's so interesting. See, this is, again, we, our expert a couple of weeks ago basically said, this isn't, a, this isn't a three-year war. Get ready. This is a hundred-year war. And his main reasoning was because you're, you're fighting an ideology. You're not just fighting right. a war, a warrior. You're fighting an So you can go squash it, but you haven't killed the ideology. The ideology is still out there. Yeah, and the ideology is far more powerful than just a form of government. Yeah, it's more powerful than, say, communism. Yeah, because, because it's, it's because like it's a religious. belief it's a belief yeah. system. It's true, and it's and they're promising you know benefits for this life and the and next, forever and the next. Well, yeah, who doesn't want harems or whatever? Yeah, and so James combat- talks about that every day. 
But that, I mean, think of that. Like you're tying this to your God. Right. And that's far more powerful than, than combating just a, uh, a political party. It's huge. Well, that's probably what drives it. I mean, if you truly believe that, this is all worth it. Yeah. Just keep pushing. Yeah. Who cares if you don't ever, you know, have freedom? Just keep pushing your message. Jeffrey Bagley. That's great, dude. And it's great that you taught us that. <laughs> now we got to go do it. I might. Okay. James, take a note here. Uh, call the White House. Okay. Tell them Jeff Bagley's available. He'll organize a special ops team. Okay. An advertising special ops team. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, you getting this? Yeah. I thought I thought you were my friend. Yeah. <laughs> and he Jeff wants to go over to Syria and start <laughs> a new advertising office for freedom. Yeah, Can I, you hear him writing, Jeff? Yeah. He writes a lot. Okay, read that back to me, James. Uh, go over to ISIS, start an advertising. Yeah. Over. Yep. Cool. Bagley, thanks, my if friend. If I die, it's your fault. <laughs> no. This is... It really – that's what we need. We need you know, the president to handpick a group of ad executives and put together messaging. I vote for you. <laughs> I vote for you. <laughs> Quiet. Jeff's going to kill me. <laughs> I'm dead. If I don't come back after this break, it's because Jeff got on me. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff Bagley. You're the best. Appreciate you, man. Uh, again, Jeff Bagley. From the University of Utah, creative director there in the marketing communications department. Just a great guy. And friend of everyone. A good man means no harm. We'll take a break. When we come back, uh, just do a a few more minutes and uh, give you a few more headlines. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Really is. Uh, it's a whole new war, folks. The same old tools we used to use. You can't just take a tank in there and just start blowing people up. You can kill people all you want. But to, how do you destroy an ideology? How do you destroy, an, especially an ideology that's so uh, tied to, you know, not just today, but eternity. It's it's so powerful. And, you know, I think one of the best ways you can do it is exactly as Jeff taught us. You, you combat it with a better story and with more clarity, with more vision. We show more and more videos of what their life is really like. Um, and I don't want to, like, glamorize their skill set, but they're – they're doing a lot of stuff right. And I guess that's part of the thing. Again, we always joke on the show about, you know, you can do everything you want to shut the Internet down. But it's a de- it's a democratic kind of process, right? The Internet is is a, is basically the the accumulation of a lot of people and a lot of networks and a lot of relationships. And. Those relationships don't go away because you order it and they don't go away just because you've killed the voice of it. The interesting thing that uh, ISIS has done is they've organized ahead. They have a they have offices that are that are spreading the message uh, that they want spread, and then they've actually 
deinstitutionalized it. So now out in the out in the uh, different locations, the different regions, the different offices, they can still use similar messaging, but put out their own messages as well. So again, Boko Haram, if you remember that terrorist group that was kidnapping girls and selling them into the sex trades, and they've now avowed their allegiance to ISIS, and ISIS has accepted that. So it's a different kind of war, friends. And again, is the rest of us just sit back and, you know, eh, let's just not send troops in or whatever. You know, maybe we don't send troops or whatever. Maybe what we send is a bunch of ad executives. I got, I got about 50 millennials I'll give you that if you put them on social media and let them go fight this war, boom, it could be pretty powerful. But again, you got to create you got to create a better answer as well, another cause. What is the cause? And when you think about it, World War II was very ideologically based as well, right? The difference is they didn't have the social media that we have today. So, wow, 100-year war with an interesting, interesting ideology. Yesterday we talked about superbugs, and it reminds me of a superbug. ISIS reminds me of a superbug. That we we didn't inoculate, we didn't, you know, we've used all these antibiotics to try to get rid of it. Now we have this strain of ideology that is extremism, and it's it's destructive. And now we may not quite have the approach that could actually eradicate it. Or not maybe eradicate it, but put it in its place. Hmm. I don't know. Always, always a uh, an interesting, interesting struggle. So that's uh, ISIS, and and again, I guess when it comes down to it, what can you do? What's your responsibility? I mean, you're just you know, you're just going to work today. <laughs> you're just going to work. Maybe one thing I would try to do is talk to my kids more. My kids are always asking, Dad, is ISIS ever going to be able to make it over here? Is ISIS this? Is ISIS that? Maybe one of the things we could do in our own circle of influence is. Reach out to those people that might feel more disenfranchised. Find ways to get involved in, in making those that are a little bit more on the outside feel a little bit more involved. Again, there's no easy answer, is there? But also, I wouldn't just assume that this is just something going on in the Middle East. Apparently, in every state now, according to Homeland Security, there's a threat in every state. There's some branch, there's some group, there's some person in every single state now that, uh, that, that is on the list of people they're watching out for. ISIS, social media, they're using it all. We're going to take a break, my friends, back next hour with more ideas, more tools to help you deal with the narcissist in your life. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. It's Friday. It's Friday. Are you okay? Yes. Me likey the Friday. It's not really excitement, more of a manic sort of feel. Uh Okay. Uh Uh-huh. I've almost made it. 
It's Friday, James. Not that that matters. <sighs> okay, can I just tell you? I got the coolest neighbor on earth. Yesterday during the show, my water heater broke. Started leaking all over. Which one? Uh, water heater number two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're calling it number two. Had a leak. And I get a text from my wife. Our water heater is leaking. What do I do? And I'm like, call the guy that put in water heater number one. Because <laughs> that broke a week ago or a month ago. Anyway, she did what she does, which is so amazing. She calls my neighbor that knows everything. Retired man, Gene Call, engineer. He's fixed everything in my house. <laughs> I honestly think he's my wife's uh, real man. Not like I'm not the real man, but she's. When it comes to like manly tasks, mm -hmm. he can take care of those for you. When it comes to manly tasks, she thinks of him first. Then she says, can I call Gene to get my <laughs> approval? And then I'm like, yeah, let's call Gene. So anyway, she called Gene. Gene comes over, says, your water heater's broken. Why don't you go buy a new water heater and I'll put it in for you? Huh. My wife drives down, buys a water heater. By the way, exactly the other, same as the other one we just bought. Did she throw it up on her shoulder and she walk out of the store? She threw it on her shoulder. Okay, that's what I used to Actually, do. Actually, she tightened her, her lifting belt. <laughs> and then she threw it over her shoulder with one arm. Brought it home. They're just hollow, so it's conceivable. They're hollow, but they're really heavy. <laughs> and by the time I got home last night, we had a brand new water heater. Nice. For one-third the cost of water heater number one that we put in a year ago. Wow. Oh, not even a year ago, a month ago. It's a good deal. Gene Call, I love you. Thank you for being the man in my family. I need an engineer next door. Honestly. He's fixed my sprinkling system when there was a huge... Water leak, and we lost 10 million gallons of water. Oof. No you, had a pool, you had a pool in the backyard? Actually, no. We just had seepage. Yeah. Yeah. For about a year. That's pretty bad. And then, Sinkhole shows up. Yeah. The water company came to us. And they're like, you seem to have used a lot of water. Have you, guys, have you guys been drinking a lot of water? We're like, no. I had a neighbor across the street that happened to. All of a sudden, yeah. I look out the window and like the 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 father and the son come sprinting into the front yard with shovels and just start digging into their front yard. You're like, that, that seems sort of odd. Something's weird here. And then they open it up and you can just see them like gesturing really angrily at the <laughs> ground because the main line from the street had cracked. Oh no way! And and they had it fixed within the day, but they just destroyed their front yard to get to that pipe. So. Have them call Gene. We'll, we'll keep that in mind. We've had other flooding issues. He went in, stopped the flood, fixed the pipes, redid the 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 drywall. He's just the man. We had a dishwasher, uh, washer and dryer. We I was sick of because it flooded. I just threw it out of my backyard. Is this enabling your lack of knowledge of these things entirely? Okay, because you could learn these things. I could. He's also the bishop of a congregation at the prison. There you go. So he works at the prison. He's retired. Yeah. I want to be Gene when I grow up. Well, retire. Well, I also have to go get an engineering degree oh, and then well, grow some brains. There's that, that part. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, anything going on in the news? 
More on the German wings. Did you call it? me a moron? 95-25. Oh, just, it just keeps getting... Keeps going. Airlines were reassessing their safety policies Thursday as investigators said the German wings co-pilot had locked his colleague out of the cockpit uh, and, and flew the plane into the side of the mountain, obviously, as we yeah. know, know now in the French Alps. Norwegian Air, EasyJet Air, and Air Canada have all announced that they will change their policies and require two crew members to be in the cockpit at all times. That's the U.S. policy anyway, right? So if the pilot or co-pilot leaves, a stewardess or somebody else steps in. And I guess the stewardess that doesn't necessarily know how to fly a plane would still be there to make sure that if he passed out, we could unlock the door. The That or the idea that the person isn't going to do something with somebody sitting there. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. By the way, there is uh, some hope because when the door was locked, no one was getting in that door. So that tells you that these doors that are we spent so much money securing, that actually works. You know what I mean? We've created a door right. that apparently you can't break down. It says uh, that more they expect more airlines across the globe to change these policies as they start to see the flaw in the way that works. Yeah, one thing. Uh, well, what, what, what else was in the story? Because I'm really worried about how we're pushing on the concept of depression. It goes on. Uh, German police last night searched the German wing co-pilot Andreas Lubitz's apartment in Dusseldorf, Germany, in the home he shared with his parents, uh, removing boxes and possessions and what one investigator called potentially a significant clue that will be taken for testing, according to the BBC. Hmm. German prosecutors later announced that they found medical documents of the 27-year-old's home that indicate an existing illness and appropriate medical treatment. Germans build newspaper reports that he had a serious depressive episode six years ago, citing internal Lufwanza documents. Hmm. Prosecutors said that they found a torn up stick note. I imagine a sticky note yeah. of some kind, post-it note, uh, signed by the co-pilot. It's signing him off work on the day of the Alps crash. It was huh. torn up, discarded, according to the BBC. No suicide note or claim of responsibility was found. <sighs> so maybe he was having second thoughts of going in or... His, yeah. He had some note, you know, getting him out of work, but he didn't use it and went to work. But so one of the things he had depression, apparently, maybe some anxiety. But let's be real that 20 percent of the population have depression and they're not going to do this. The the, uh, the airline also said that he passed all tests. Yeah. You know, any, any in, he the, I, I guess there was a point several years ago where he had to retake some tests because depression or something yeah. of that nature. But nothing currently, nothing of the testing he's done recently to show that there was any problems. Wow. And again, let's be careful. There's a lot of people with depression and we're throwing it out there like depression was the cause of this. But this would be this would be kind of manic, extreme depression. This isn't your everyday form of depression. But they're also now starting to say we probably need better mental health evaluation and reporting on pilots that have hundreds of people under their care. You know, they they, they go have physicals measure. every year, but we probably need you know mental health clearing and better testing and. A uh, more data suggests that the plane was on autopilot. The autopilot was manually reset to take the aircraft down to 96 feet. Yeah. Uh, according to it's called Flight Radar 24, a website that tracks aviation data. The website surmised that 96 feet was the lowest altitude setting the system would accept. The changes were made uh, just before the plane began a steep descent that lasted more than eight minutes. The aircraft hit the mountainside. Wow. Blah, 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 blah. And apparently it also had to be turned off. Because at some point, the autopilot 
would have – so it flew autopilot for a while, but apparently right near – before hitting, it would have had to have been turned off or the plane would have corrected. So he had to somehow – Purposely do that. Turn so. that off. Ah, oh, it's sad. Sad. The crazy world we live in, folks. Uh, coming up, have you been watching the NCAA tournament? Well, what about the idea of paying college athletes? You know, this is big business. The universities are making millions. The coaches of these teams are making millions. Everyone's making money except the athletes. What if I told you that economists are now recommending that we pay college athletes? We're going to have a discussion about that. Alan Sanderson, the author of an article on this subject and an economist, is going to be joining us. Should we be paying our college athletes? That's up next on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody. That's CBS College Basketball's theme. Tell me this doesn't bring back memories. Oh, playing with my Nerf ball in my bedroom like like 10 years ago. No, 35 years ago. Hooping it up. Oh, man. Those were the days. Ralph Sampson. I pretended to be Ralph Sampson. A little hook shot. We all love college, you know, athletics. Come on. It's huge business. And uh, we all know that. There's some big money going on there. And we, all, we always have believed that there's just power and it's important that we teach these kids character. You know, we don't pay them to go play. They're there to get, an, they're there to get their education. That's pay enough. Well, that probably made sense many, many years ago before basketball or football was a multi multi million dollar enterprise for every university, and obviously not every university is making a ton of money at this. But you know what? There seems to be a lot of money in this sport, and yet there are still athletes that, at times, you know, they can't even make their meet their needs. So, according to uh, our next guest, Alan Sanderson, he's a senior lecturer in the Department of Economics at the University of Chicago. And he's written an article all about recommending paying college athletes. Uh, it's it's an important discussion, and I'm so excited to have him. Dr. Alan Sanderson, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, glad to do it. So good to have you. Really, I feel like uh, we we need some insight here. In a weird way, it seems obvious that these uh, some some of the most basic needs of these college athletes should be met, and yet... We have a really awkward system. We can't pay the kids because they're students, so they also don't fall under certain labor laws. Talk to us about really why are we – what's going on? Why, why is it that a, a football coach can make millions of dollars but the athlete that's in college can't make anything? Well, um, yeah, glad to chat about that a little uh... In addition to being a uh, faculty member at the University of Chicago, I'm also a BYU graduate. That's right. That's anyway, right. I'm going to throw that in. That's good. Um, in, in part, the term student-athlete was coined by a Big Ten commissioner at one point, Walter Byers, and it was really done for one particular reason. It isn't the feel-good student-athlete or scholar-athlete, which is a real joke. 
<laughs> but by by having these guys classified as students, it means they're not subject to labor laws. They're not subject to a lot of other uh, restrictions that, that an institution would have. So they can pretty much be taken advantage of if, if mm. the institution or the NCA wants to do that. The reason the coaches make so much money is because, in fact, <laughs> that they are Said they are employees, uh, and if you wanted to fix their salaries, uh, 15 minutes later you'd be in court uh, right. with, with their attorney. Uh, so uh, the student athlete doesn't have that uh, that option. Although a number of court cases will probably test that very sorely uh, in, in the next uh, few years. Yeah. So, so what's what you're saying is we're on the verge, the cusp of a lot of probably lawsuits that are going to start testing some of these rights of a college student to, to maybe be paid. Yeah. I, I, in fact, don't think college athletics will look anything five years from now, 10 years from now, will not look anything like it looks today or has for the last 50 years. Huh. I mean, there, there's three big things. Uh, one, Ed O'Bannon, who was a former basketball player at UCLA yeah. and then, uh, in, in the NBA, uh, won his suit. It's on appeal, but they'll they'll win, and the NCAA will lose. Uh, and this is against the video manufacturers that right. uh, game manufacturers who have his image. And it's when you you sign a very lengthy contract when you um, you become a, a student athlete, and one says that the NCAA basically owns the right to your image for the rest of your life. <laughs> uh, and but that's now that's going to go by the wayside. That costs the NCAA a little money. Um, the Northwestern football players uh, who had a petition uh, for the National Labor Relations Board, which they won, saying that the primary affiliation of them and Northwestern is not as a student, but in fact as an employee. Hmm. And they won. Northwestern is appealing it. They're going to lose. They know they're going to lose, but they just have to appeal it. Uh what does that mean? It means that the university is potentially a lot more vulnerable for things like medical or concussions. Oh, that's or workman's true. Com- work, workman's compensation. That's expensive. It's also complicated because of a lot of state laws. The third one that's out there, the third shoe, and if this one drops, then it's over for the NCA. That's the labor lawyer Jeff Kessler will have a class action suit saying that, in fact, the NCAA not only establishes this is the payment, room and board, tuition, fees, books, that's the grant and aid, but, in fact, it's a violation of the Sherman antitrust law because they cap it. There's a cap. They they unilaterally set that. You can't set arbitrarily or unilaterally set the coaches' salaries because you'd be hauled into court immediately. Right. But if Kessler wins, then that's over for the NCAA. Uh, they would move back to just being a record-keeping uh, organization. So this is a this is a complicated situation. I mean, a lot of people are like, just pay them. But if you pay them, they become employees. Employees then get other benefits, health care mm-hmm. benefits for life. I mean, I'm assuming if your injury took place during your health, I mean, I guess you'd be injured on the job. Um, yeah. Yeah. So they really become basically paid employees for their play, mm-hmm. which yeah. um, it, it opens up a huge can of worms. But, Alan, I guess in your in your estimation as an economist, somebody who's studied this, researched this, you believe they really need to be paying them. 
Well, I, th- I mean, in part, it's a, it's an economic issue. Every uh, for all, all practical purposes, these guys are employees, right? Uh, and, and the coach, who's their boss, uh, sets you know basically their 168 hour a week schedule. Uh, yeah. That's how many hours you've got, and he he wants 60 of them. And uh, so, for all practical purposes, they're employees. And again, we we have you know, and again, I have with BYU, you know, follow the the, the sports, uh, you know, the the myth and the love affair and the emotional attachments and whatever. Yeah. But it's uh, as you started out uh, right at the top of your show, saying it's a huge business. Yes, it is. Um, in in 1984, in inflation adjusted dollars, uh, CBS paid the NCAA 12 million dollars to broadcast March Madness. Okay, 12 oh. million. This year, it's eight hundred million. Holy cow! To 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 broadcast what three weeks of basketball? Well, that's right. And it it has you know at, at twelve million dollars, eh, you know that's not a whole lot of money as these things go, and who cares? But when it's eight hundred million dollars, uh, somebody cares. Yeah. And uh, that's going to the coaches. It's going to the institutions, the athletic directors. It's just not going to the athletes. Well, that, that's what I'm wondering is out of $800 million, do you have any idea what percentage actually trickles down to the athlete? Oh, not much more other than the souvenir cap and T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, the free uh, gear. Yeah, from they the, get lots yeah, of gear. From, yeah, from the, from the tournament. No, it, it's it's just become gross exploitation. And the the other thing, which you know, and, and again, I would be very sensitive to it as well. If you're watching March Madness, you can watch Kentucky play, you know, whoever. Uh, everybody out on the court's black, mm-hmm. and so the guys who are really putting in the long hours to entertain all of this uh, are young black males from you know largely inner city neighborhoods. And uh, they're the ones, uh, men's basketball players and, and football players, who are the most exploited. Yeah, and, 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 and so, but I guess we so used to has, we used to just say that, well, yeah, but they're getting an education. Yeah, well, they're not getting an education. I mean, that's a joke uh, because there, there's no way they can have a, a meaningful, you know, educational experience while they're working sixty hours. Of, yeah, yeah. And you get respected institutions, you know, that we normally would think of, or these are, you know, the, the cream of the crop in terms of academic institutions like uh, UNC, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Right. Has come out for the last 20 years. They've had these fake bogus or paper courses. 3,100 students went through there, and more than half of them were, were football players, mm-hmm. African-American football players. Courses never met. It was just automatically, you know, you got an A, and that helps offset the D yeah. somewhere else. And they're learning. I, I saw re- I saw a report somewhere they're learning languages that no one ever knows. No one ever can speak yeah. like Swahili or yeah, yeah. yeah John Oliver's yeah uh, John Oliver's you know, work. YouTube that's very 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 funny uh, and, and and tragic. So it really is the other, the, exploitation. The other yeah, and, and the other most of these programs. I mean, there are certainly the Ohio States and the Texas and, and so forth, but most of these. Uh, big programs lose money for their institutions, and they're kept afloat by large fees transferred from the rest of the student body to support men's basketball and, and football programs uh, and, and coaches. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that that right there, though, Alan, is really – that probably would blow people's mind. I think in your article you say one in six NCAA Division One teams are profitable. 
Yeah. So so then they're really dragging funds from every other mm. area. And but everyone's argument is always that, well, profitable or not, this, you know, having a program brings in the alumni to invest money. It brings in, you know, fan base. It also draws more people to the university. So it's more of a PR effort, but they're really stealing from the scholarly side and giving it to the athletic side. Yeah, in addition, the, the, the evidence is pretty mixed, or in some cases, does this bring in more alumni contributions? Does it bring in better students? Uh, the, the evidence is pretty sketchy there. In mm-hmm. fact, one of the best pieces done was done by Devin Pope, who's a faculty member at the University of Chicago, but also a BYU graduate. Oh, uh, really? An econo- yeah. economist at BYU. Uh, actually, Devin's brother, uh, Nolan, will be my TA for our course that starts oh, great. on the economics of sports. Um yeah, that that um, we're, we're, I'm sorry, where I was going. So it's draining money. Most of these most of these lose money. So they're they're really taking money away, even from non-revenue sports, because so much of it has to go to support this this proposition for which the university directly loses money and indirectly doesn't get that much in terms of alumni contributions or, or better students. Mm. We uh, Let's take a break, Alan. I want to come back and, and get into some more of this, like how how should we handle this? What would what, How should this roll out? What happens if we get kind of rid of the amateur, amateur status of these student-athletes? Uh, more, more discussion. We're going to try to understand maybe the myth and maybe the realities around uh, – pay for play sports the the college athlete um are they being exploited we're talking about it alan sanderson uh, is joining us we'll be right back you're listening to the matt townsend show right here on byu radio Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. That's uh, One Shining Moment, Teddy Pendergrass. That's the uh, the montage music when we're putting together the great montage reels from college sports. You know, it's a, it's an interesting thing. We, we, we hear about these athletes, the professional athlete signing million-dollar deals. We hear about the coaches in the NCAA signing multi-million-dollar deals. Uh, we also hear about the brand, like the uh, the apparel and the deals on jerseys, and how much money is being made. And yet, we also hear the story about the student athlete that you know might barely have enough money to eat, and yet living, you know, working sixty-hour weeks, still trying to get their education. Many of them minorities from inner city schools with this is the dream, right? This is the hope. They finally get their shot. Is it fair that they're not being compensated? And is it does it make sense? And according to some economists, it probably doesn't. And and those that have actually researched it, got in uh, and understood, understand what's going on behind the scenes. There's probably some myths we need to debunk. We've asked Alan Sanderson to join us. Alan is uh, on faculty. He's a senior lecturer in the Department of Economics at the University of Chicago. He also serves as on the editorial board of various journals, Journals of Sports Economics, Journal of Political Economy, Journal of Business, Journal of Law and Economics. He's well-read, well-researched, 
and uh, wrote a wonderful article uh, titled Economists Recommend Paying College Athletes. He also happens to be a BYU alum. Alan Sanderson, welcome back to the show. Hey, welcome, Matt. Good to have you. And so some more – so some of the myths are most of these colleges aren't breaking even in their sports department. One in six might be. They're probably borrowing money from other sources on the university. There seems to be some uh, – the, the, some, the jury might still be out on whether this is actually providing – enough benefit in drawing people to the university and building brand. I mean, a lot of times too, Alan, sometimes athletic scandals create major brand problems like for Penn state and, you know, Miami and some of those universities that have really had some issues. Yeah, no, no, very definitely. It's, uh, there's, uh, I mean, the, you look at the you know the Heisman Trophy winners over the last ten years, you know from Reggie Bush to James Winston, you know to Johnny Manziel. There, there are a lot of sort of tainting going on, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and again the the big one being Penn State, on the just you know horrendous side, UNC on the the academic fraud side. Why don't I, is there too much political pressure to keep it alive? Well, there, there's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of pressure. There's also a lot of money in it, yeah. uh, and not for the student athlete, but there's certainly a lot of money in it for the coaches. There's a lot of money for the for the NCA. Uh, everybody benefits from this, except uh, you know the the kids who are out on the out on the field. Uh, the, the other beneficiary here, in terms of keeping it going, and, and you know, make no bones about it, is the National Football League and the National Basketball Association. Because the restrictions are, say, for the in the NFL, you have to be out of high school for three years, which right. means you've got to go to college for three years. Uh, in the NBA, it's one year, and David Stern, the former commissioner, and Adam Silver, the the current commissioner, want that moved to two years. Huh. Uh, and so, you're just exploiting these kids. You know, there, there's no reason. Uh, that you know, say even a, a Jabari Parker, uh, mm-hmm. who uh, you know, to, to pick a, a name familiar to you and, and to me, went to the to the ward local ward here in Chicago. Oh, really? Uh, you know, there, there's no reason why he couldn't have just gone to the NBA uh, right out of high school. Yeah, he would have been a lottery pick. But no, he has to he has to have one year of indentured servitude. <laughs> uh, and, and certainly, the the Kentucky starting lineup will not be the same Kentucky starting lineup next year because right. these guys will all, all be gone. Uh, so the NBA uh, and the NFL just exploit these kids tremendously. And then uh, I've, I've written locally about it here for the Chicago Tribune with the NFL draft is in Chicago in a couple months. And we're sort of celebrating, gee, we're getting this big event. Well, I think we ought to be protesting and not celebrating it because the NBA and the NFL holding these drafts are just basically reducing a kid's employment opportunities from 30 or 32 employers down to one. Hmm. So you're just exploiting them uh, even further. So it, there's a lot of people uh, on, on the seamy side of this stuff. And, well, and there's no other occupation, really, when you turn 18. You know, McDonald's can hire you. You, um, you know, Macy's yeah. can hire you. Anybody can hire you. But uh, you're not allowed to play professional sports. Yeah, um, that, that's unlike in baseball, you can, but not, certainly not in football or basketball. Well, and you end up in the end, uh, you're also regulated. You're and the rules are enforced by the NCAA. So we always we always hear of these incredible runs, national championships, 
and then two, three years later, we find out that there was a scandal. It seems like most of the scandals are after the championships, after the... I mean, so in a weird way, you're also being regulated by one of the greater, uh, it seems like, profiteers of the system. So yeah. it, it's a weird, it's a weird, convoluted system. Yeah, I mean, there's no other, no other country in the world that has that has this kind of system where uh, basically higher education institutions, higher education institutions are, are running semi-professional uh, sports programs on the side. Nobody does that. Right. We, we, just, we should just stop it and, and let let the NFL and NBA run their minor leagues, development leagues, uh, as Major League Baseball does. Do you ever sense that you could actually run it as a minor league professional team with affiliations to universities and then just let the university sell their like, their their logos, their branding mm-hmm. – but it's but see it as a separate entity. Even if they practiced on facilities that were on campuses, and they were just trying to do that to affiliate yeah. affiliate and and market via affiliation, it still seems like it'd be a cleaner deal. Yeah, I I, I think that's a distinct possibility. Certainly, uh, yeah, as I, I would say to my students, you know, on, on April sixth. There are going to be a, a couple of basketball games, men's basketball games, on, on television on, on April, Monday night, April 6th. One is the Portland Trailblazers pay, play the uh, the Nets, and that's much better basketball than whoever Kentucky is going to play that night. Mm-hmm. But we care much more about the NCA than we care about you know the the second tier of uh, of the NBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a part, it is this affiliation. You know, I'm I'm a Blue Devil at heart. I'm yeah. a, you know I'm a Notre Dame graduate. I, I'm whatever. Um, you know, hook'em horns or you know whatever it can be. And and so that affiliation can can still can still exist. In fact, I think once the courts rule uh, against the NCA in in the Kessler case, and I suspect they will. The governing unit won't be the NCA anymore. It could well be the conferences. Okay. So that the Big Ten conference or Pac-12 or, or whatever could be the governing uh, institution. And I think the courts in the past have been willing to let that go, saying it's not a monopoly in the same way that the NCA is. And if the Big Ten wants to have its rules and affiliations, uh, so be it. As long as the NBA, or excuse me, as long as the Big Ten isn't colluding with the Pac-12 or something right. in, in these decisions, so it may well be that the conference will sort of become the governing organization. And at that point, you, you have a lot of different models out there. Yeah, it'll probably. Yeah, it'll, it seems like you'll start seeing maybe some more innovation going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does does it? Uh, what about Prop Nine? And and the impact that has where they tried to create equality for the female athletes, but the female athletes and their their games don't tend to draw the money as as much money as probably the football and the and the the basketball does. But then everyone has to have equal scholarships as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's a title. You said Prop Nine, the Title Nine. Oh, sorry, yeah, Title Nine. Yeah, exactly. In the 1972 yeah. education amendments. Um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I suspect women's sports will actually be better if you downsize a lot of, of the men's programs. As I say, most of them currently are losing money, and so they're draining money from the rest of the university, including non-revenue sports for men and, and for women. So if if they stop bleeding money in, in football and men's basketball, then that would in theory be money that could flop back to a number, you know, the library, uh-huh. for example. Yeah. Uh, but it could also certainly go to non-revenue sports. So I, I actually think uh, women, uh, women's force will be better off without this. I mean, one of I, I think, you know, we, we have approximately thirty professional football teams and, and basketball teams and baseball teams at, at the Premier Leagues. There's no sense why we have to have 350 men's basketball programs in college, you know, or 150 men's football programs. Right. Uh, there's just we've just way overdosed on this. And one of the reasons you overdose on it is because you're not paying the players. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the reason, you know, whoever wins the NCAA is going to the men's basketball tournament is going to end up playing about 40 games. 25 years ago or back you know, further when I was at BYU, a season was sort of 20, 25 games, something mm. like that. Now it's 40. And the reason you expand that is because you're not paying the players. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to expand in the NBA or Major League Baseball or whatever, the players will say, oh, sure, that's fine. We'll be glad to play a few more games or another conference or another tournament here or whatever. We just want half the money. Yeah, and, and at that point, the league says, "Well, it's not worth it to us if you get half for us to expand the schedule." But when you're not paying the player, it makes sense. Totally. Yeah, and then you can just keep adding a game, like they're adding the the playoff series and in, in the mm-hmm. football. Um, yeah, but that's inter- that's an interesting point. If if you were paying, then then you probably wouldn't have 360 or whatever teams. You'd you'd you know you'd be down to 40. And yeah. then it would be competitive. Now, now go to this argument. What about because there's still the illusion that all of this is about getting everyone else educated. It's about getting these people educated. Like what about the lacrosse player whose team wouldn't actually exist except for the fact that they're in a, they're, uh, the football team brings in such money that it can afford to keep a lacrosse team going? And that then provides five scholarships for men and women in lacrosse. Well, the, the, again, come back. Uh, our argument is that only one in six of these men's football programs makes money. Okay. And so th- they're really currently draining money from lacrosse. They're not adding to it. So lacrosse is going to be better off if the football team and the men's basketball team were not draining millions of dollars from yeah. them. We, I think we just uh, think they're inherently making money. And they're they, not. But they're not. And I guess are you talking about everyone in the big conferences, they just – they like University of Utah, when it moved to the Pac-12, it changed a lot of their finances simply by moving into a bigger league and playing with the Pac-12. Uh, so it's really just the, the ones – I guess what you're saying is the largest divisions, largest conferences, and the best teams in those conferences are cash flowing. The rest probably struggling. Yeah, yeah, they're they're just bleeding money, hmm. and so, yet uh, it's such an interesting thing because I, again, I guess we don't get we don't get all the information, do we? Because we nah. we're all so impassioned and and so love the sport and the you know the rivalries uh, that we we maybe yeah. lose it. 
You know, the other, and, and, and let me say, I am a, a, a big sports fan, uh, you know, and, and still follow BYU athletics, and, and I'm, you know, a sports fan of, of the, the Chicago professional teams here. But I'm also an academic, and I, and I think universities ought to, you know, sort of specialize in the teaching and dissemination <laughs> of knowledge uh, and not be running semi-pro right. athletic programs. Well, it also uh, seems so, like there's a yeah. market, right? There's There's people out there that would love to – you know, go make five million dollars a year running a team. You know, outside of the university. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so what? What do you? What about just simply the idea of branding the athlete? Let the athlete come in, and they even keep the same deal, but they get to keep their name, their likeness, their branding. Anything mm-hmm. that comes from their name or likeness or branding, they get to keep. Yeah, no, I, I see nothing wrong with that at all. Okay, uh, one, one interesting sort of thing is if, if you go back to 1992 in the Barcelona Olympics, that's when we sent the dream team, the basketball. Yeah. We sent pro athletes for the first time. There were 12 players on that U.S. team that dominated everybody. Mm-hmm. But the that T-shirt only has 11 faces on it, not 12. Michael Jordan's face is not there. Because he and Nike said we own his image, and if you want his, if you want his face on that T-shirt, fine. But you're going to have to pay us. Interesting. So it's not, and so I don't see why one has to sell one's likeness for free forever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think it's an interesting, interesting concept. Well, Alan, we appreciate you. Let me, let yeah. me if you have time, just yeah. one more uh, comment here is that uh, just as almost anything, if if more people, you know, go to Burger King, that probably means that fewer are going to McDonald's. You know, there are winners and losers in these things. Um, if you went to paying players or compensating them much more toward a free market. Not all players are going to benefit from that. Right. The 85th guy on the Florida State football team is getting a good deal at the moment because he's getting room board tuition fees and books and probably some nice dates. Uh, but uh, and he gets to be part of you know have a letter jacket. But it's the quarterback you know who's probably worth several million dollars to Florida State who's just getting fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. If if a team drops football uh, or if you're paying the athletes, some are going to benefit and some are going to lose well i i totally agree i also think there's some people that are losing anyway on these teams because they're having their knees blown out they then get addicted to drugs uh prescription drugs trying to take care of their their physical ailments um well and 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 football the concussions is the big issue yeah well and they might opt out right so if if there wasn't the illusion and they weren't making money they might opt out sooner you know, no. and not have to keep certain dreams alive as well, and maybe find yeah. healthier plans that might produce better results for them long term. Yeah, exactly. Alan, we appreciate your insight. Uh, we're going to have to come check back in with you after these uh, cases come down, and 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 we start seeing a little movement in this. Alan Sanderson, uh, really great resource on sports economics. Uh, go to his website at the University of Chicago. Just look up Alan R. Sanderson, University of Chicago. And you'll get all the information you need. We're taking a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll come back, continue this discussion a little bit more right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
interesting discussion. Do you pay college athletes? I mean, I always grew up that there's something honorable about being an amateur. Unpaid. Then all of a sudden I think, yeah, but man, if somebody's making money on my image forever, that's going to be frustrating. Hmm. What do you do? It's a it's a it's a big decision. And I don't know how you untangle this crazy web because but I think it looks like the courts are going to end up doing it. Three lawsuits on the way that uh, will probably plus just on top of that all of the head injuries with the the uh, concussion problem that you keep hearing about in football and other sports. I have someone very close to me that um, had a chance to come back and even play for BYU. And he had played a little bit at a Division II college and, you know, loved it. Loved football, all states, defensive end, amazing, fast guy. And chose, played one year, uh, D2, and decided not to come to BYU. They wanted him. They recruited him. They would have paid for school, gave him a lot of opportunities if he wanted it. And he said no. And I'm like, come on, why? Why don't you want to do that? Number one reason, chance of going pro is like 1% out of college sports. So if you're in college, you've got a 1% chance of going pro, but you probably have about a 50% chance of hurting yourself. Yes. Like for your life. For life. Having a limp. And that's what he said. He goes, I don't yes. want my knees to go. I'm not going to give my knees for college bat or college football. And okay, he, lo- we'll he loved the sport. But I'm not gonna. If I'm gonna give my knees, let me do it for something else. Yeah, and that's. I mean, that you, it takes a uh, a person to kind of look at the bigger picture because you get caught up in that whole. Yeah. Because the coaches, when they recruit you, they just inundate you with texts and oh. mail, and they call you up and say, "Hey, how you doing? Did you yeah. did you have fun at your senior prom? That's great. We're really pulling for did you. Did you go you with Stacy? Yeah, they know all this you stuff about Stacey. you, and it's it's really like official catfishing almost. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, you've met them, so it's not really you know the 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 full extent of catfishing, but it, it, it's kind of that thing where they've they they insert yourselves in their in your life, yeah, so that you won't feel like another school is more of your friend, right? Well, and then they fly so. in on their big jets, and then they bring you all this garb, and now all of a sudden for the day you can be from Notre Dame, or whatever, yeah, and and it's all to feed this machine to bring in more money from oh, yeah. TV contracts, and you have to keep your level of play up, so they need the best talent to do that. Isn't that weird, too? We also talked about this uh, on signing day with all the high school students. So now the universities go down to the high schools now and create these big promotional moments on signing day with media and press coverage. And I'm thinking, should a 17-year-old be psych- – are they psychologically able to, A, even make this decision, really, and – then should they be getting this much press and media? It kind of blows the whole thing out uh-huh. of proportion. I mean, you're you're signing to go to college. There's a huge what if you ever actually get on a yeah. field or on oh, a yeah. court, whatever to play. And and I yeah. see I, honestly, I bet. But right it's all now, a promotional machine to to keep pumping you attention keep, yeah. towards the sports programs. And then I didn't realize, but and then they the influence the NCAA has on the NFL. It's just it's just it's just a weird system. And again, it's not I just think it's just how it's grown. Well, I don't think anyone's just evil doing this. The I just think it's has, money. The NCAA has uh influence on pro leagues, but the same way the pro leagues 
affect when, when yeah. he was talking about the NBA when they made the rule that you need to be a certain age before yeah. you can go pro, which makes it so everyone has to go to one year of college uh-huh. at least. So there's been a, a small number of people, but they jump to Europe. Right. They go somewhere else to play and then come back and, and after a year to play to try their, their hand at the NBA. I don't know how successful that's been, yeah. but that, that's an option because you don't want to go to college. But, so you go somewhere else. You do something else. Uh, Bryce Harper, who plays yeah. for the uh, Washington Nationals, he went to a junior college and then ended up kind of in a minor league sort of uh-huh. situation before he went pro because he didn't want to go to, say, a four-year college. Right. He was like, what's the point? Well, I want to play pro. You're a sports guy. You've done sports your whole life. Talk to me about this. Why wouldn't you just have affiliations? So cut off uh, the sports programs from the universities, outsource it. It's all minor league, basically, minor, minor league, but then affiliate them with NFL programs. So they're just they're minor just, leagues, they're so just, just minor league. It's like em- a minor league baseball system. Embrace the reality. Uh-huh. The problem is it's associated with the school, and I think there's this idea of education. We're yeah. here to educate young men. You hear that quite a bit. Every press conference for the NCAA tournament, any questions for the student-athletes, right. which is a joke when you're talking to Kentucky every – the va- probably like 80% of the guys on that team are looking to go pro after this one season. Yeah. They will drop out of class before uh, the so, end of the semester. Okay, you know? so you just say, we uh, because you're affiliated with this, all you're really buying is our branding, not our education. If you want an education, we'll give you a discount. You can come the, to the school for 50% off. The schools don't want to be associated with something that has their name that doesn't have an education focus also. Right. See, so they, they're not but, going to admit what's actually right. happening. But they also don't have the official. guts to just get rid of it. No, so, there's money involved. Well, exactly. So let, then just let them get the money by br- using the brand. They might pay for a library because <laughs> of the TV contract with football. Yeah, one in six, apparently. So The it, other five aren't paying for lunch. And I know I, I've read things where schools are really dealing with like a, a moral sort yeah. of argument. Do we support something that no, doesn't necessarily meet our education standards, but brings in money? And Well, I think it's yeah. great. I, I actually, this is a situation where I like the lawsuit idea simply because it's going to push it's going to push some thinking. Uh, interesting stuff. We're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to have a whole new show, hour number two. We're going to be getting into, um, did we overdo cleaning? Maybe we're too into being clean freaks here in the U.S. We'll talk about it next hour on the Matt Townsend Show. Friends, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to hour number two of Townsend Palooza. This sounds weird. Welcome to the program, folks. Uh, got a great show for you today. Have you ever felt like uh, you just got too much clutter in your life? I have so much clutter, I have two computers on my desktop. I like to run uh, redundant systems just in case I have a breakdown. Is that the word, redundancy? Yes. That's what I like to do. You're going for the dual screen experience. Actually, don't have. I have two, two it's screens. It's two separate Actually, computers. It's yes. two systems. Two entirely separate systems. No shared screen. I mean, that'd be great. I could have two systems on one screen. I've asked my uh, my IT experts here. And they look at me like, why would you want that? I have two screens. 
You have two screens. On my desk. I love it. Hey, do you, can I borrow one? No. They're both in use right now. One has my email. The other has, you know. I'm looking my for internet. another. I'm looking for two screens. Two screens. All right. If I could just have one of yours and, and one maybe of, one. James, that, uh, can I get one of your screens? No, I have four, but yeah. I'm using all of them. You're a screen hog. Nah, I, I need every single one of these screens. They're it's, all being used at yeah, the moment. Pretty important. Wow. I, I just have a laptop screen that shuts off every minute and a half. It shuts off every minute and a half, and I can't remember my password to get in, so I have to call IT. Now mm. it's great when you have Chuck Sims, who works, uh, is in charge of basically all IT for the world, or BYU Broadcasting. He same thing. He'll know my password. Yes. He'll be like, oh, yes. You know what's great about him? He'll know it off the top of his head. He'll just like, oh, there you go. There he's, he's a pro. I'm like, how did you remember my password? He's like, Matt, come on. Love Monkey 2018. <laughs> who, who has that Who's going to forget password? that? Anyway. Uh, good stuff. Here's a question I need you guys to answer. So today when I was driving in, it's dark. No one's mm. driving because it's so early and, you know, mm. no one's supposed to be up that early. When I get on BYU campus um, – and I pass that sign that says campus to the world or whatever. What's it? What's the phrase? Yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. It's a great phrase. And I pass it and I'm like, that's true. And now I'm on the campus to the world or whatever. And um, The world is our campus. The world is our campus. Yeah, there you go. I had to get it right there. Thanks, James. Um, when I, they have a red light that I stop at. You're not allowed – you're not supposed to turn right on until, unless it's green. Okay. It's specific – you can't turn right. Okay. So if I'm there on a red light, no one else is around. Just no go. one. Just go. No one. I can't look go. left. I look do. right. I look right. I look left. I look front. I look back. I call the police station. Nobody's coming. There's no police in the area. I look, Just go. Who's going to know? I can't go. Who's going to know? I'm on the campus to the world. Who's going to know? Who's going to know is yeah. you know who. Does he care? That's what I'm trying to figure out. He's got other things to do. I'd love Very to open the phone job. lines on this one because I see people wanting to cross the street at BYU at 9 in the morning yeah. or at 7, 6 in the morning, and they won't cross. They just stand there and wait. Because the crosswalk's <laughs> not chirping yet. I just go. So I'm like, well, if they're not going to go, I'm not going to go. So we all just sit there. Yeah. It's the weirdest thing. Can you just be too obedient? Yeah. I don't know. Think about it. I don't just, have an just go. Just be a rebel. Have one of those rebellious moments and no. just go. Just drive. See, look at you. You are the devil. No. You are the devil tempting me. I just can rationalize. Justify. Do you so just you, go. do you go? Would you go? No, I sit there and wait. Yeah, you wait too. James, would you go? I uh, probably wait. But walking, I, I do go. I, I admit. I don't wait for the walk so you, sign. You a jaywalk, basically. No, I use the crosswalk. That's that's a straight. But what line. if it's something like in my my situation when my kid was born, four in the morning? Oh, you go. We're flying across town. I didn't stop for a red light. Oh, anytime. The... Well, yeah. If you've got a pregnant lady that's water has broken, it's yeah. a that's a free ticket. But then at that point, the rest of the time when I'm driving to work at four in the morning, I'm like, why am I waiting? There's what nobody here. Yeah, but you don't have a pregnant woman in your car. Right. That's why when my wife was pregnant, free ticket. We'd always carry just a cup of water, and <laughs> just toss it on the ground whenever. <laughs> We just officer. Oh, that's great. Okay. What, hey, if you feel that you can do that and have a clear conscience. Well, I wouldn't do it. My wife would do it. Well, still. I'd you're, tell her to. i say, here's the water. You're associated. We just got pulled over. You got to do something. Is that bad? Yes. That seems bad. Yes. 
We probably ought not tweet that out. Let's not be tweeting that out, Brandon. Don't be tweeting that. Okay. Well, that's my question. So uh, I guess the answer is no, unless you have a pregnant woman in the car and a cup of water. Anything else? Well, right now, there's a lot of controversies in this country when it comes to politics. Yes. No matter what happens, someone has a differing opinion. Someone runs in front of a microphone and turns something, kind of blows it out of proportion. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get a lot more of that as we ramp up into a presidential election season. We have two candidates already in the game. And Hillary Rodham Clinton on the way. So someone's going to say something. Someone's going to be... Yeah. Offended, run to a microphone. On Monday, David Cameron, Prime Minister of Britain, mm-hmm. did something, as they're calling here, very brave. The British Prime Minister, facing what is likely to be an extremely close race for re-election on May 7th, went to a voter's garden, so backyard, yeah. and had a meal, kind of like a barbecue. Sure, just right? a little just barbecue. We talk about that all the photo time. Photo ops, people sit down with, with, with the everyday voter type of thing, and they have a, me- a meal with them. He allowed the British press to take a photograph of him eating the meal. Oh, boy. Braver still, he ate a hot dog with a fork. Oh, boy. So you have a hot dog. Yeah. And I'm like, was this a British hot dog? Is this different than what we... Is this a brat? And so you go in. No, it was a hot dog. It had a bun. It looked just like any hot dog you've ever eaten. He ate it with a fork. And the reason he did that is because there was another politician recently that was eating a a bacon sandwich of some kind. And you're you're chewing and there's a weird face. And a photographer took a a picture. He looks like he's in this weird look. And it went everywhere in Britain. And he was embarrassed because he made a face while he was eating a sandwich. And so they're like, you're letting the media in to take pictures. And then he... Eats a sandwich, or eats a eats a hot dog. With eats a, fork. a hot dog with a fork, and so the, now the message is he's not the common man, no. because he has to eat with a fork. Well, yeah, he's regal. He's regal, and he's with a party that's seen as the party of the you know the rich. <laughs> yeah, and he's out of touch well, with the common man. Look, he can't even eat a hot dog, right? You know, you and that's know how that, they spin it. Yeah, you know that's true. It's a lose-lose situation. <laughs> so as it says, the implication behind all this is that Cameron isn't a normal human being who would presumably eat a hot dog with his hands. You see, you've got to choose. He's got to commit. If he's going to go be the man of man's with the commoner, then you just got to grab a brat or a hot dog and just shove it in your mouth. And if he's not, then get a smoothie and slurp it out of a straw. Now, I think the mayor of New York has had some problems with pizza. Yeah. Uh, Trump. Uh, Trump. Donald Trump's yeah. had some problem. He's been eating. No, he's not the mayor, obviously, but yeah. Donald Trump, another situation, eating pizza with a fork. No. He's had some problems. You pick no. up the pizza. You, just, you fold it in half. Yeah. And you, you shove it in. And, and something like pizza, iconic with, with voters in New York. And if, if these people need help coaching on food eating, give us a call. Listen to the Matt Townsend show. I will walk them personally through how to eat a hot dog. Mm, hot dog sounds really good right now. Yeah, that's one thing I really noticed about you is you you are very photogenic when you're eating a hot dog. Have you noticed that? Yeah, and when you're eating pizza as well. There's a special way that you eat it and yeah, it just you you want to look young. Yep. You want to look vibrant, spry. Spry, uh you place the dog <laughs> in front of your mouth so your mouth isn't this big gaping hole. Mhm. Yeah. I always like to turn my head and lift my chin a little bit. A little profile eat. shot. Yeah, because it gets yeah. rid of the double chin, and it makes you look slender while you're stuffing 
a dog in your mouth. So I, I just enjoy that politics is the same across the planet. It's so true. Ridiculous things become the most important thing because of, you know, you ate a hot dog with your fork. Oh, I tell you. Isn't it crazy? Of all the things we should be worrying about, Cameron's hot dog eating habits. Please. Hey, uh, do you ever feel like clutter's getting away from you? Your life is just, you know, full of clutter. You're drowning in it. Well, we are going to change that with our next guest. When we come back, Erin Rooney Dolan is going to be joining us. She is the author of the book, Unclutter Your Life in One Week. She's going to be giving us tips to, uh, to organize and to get organized. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us and we will declutter your life. To the Matt Townsend Show. Do you ever feel like uh, all of your junk is going to take you over? Are the stacks getting higher and higher? Taller? Man, got to be careful. You can die in the canyon of old newspapers. Joining us on the phone is uh, Aaron Rooney Doland. And Aaron is the author of Unclutter Your Life in One Week. She uh, tries to make that task a lot more manageable. You know, it's not easy to unclutter or declutter, and she's going to walk us through. Miss Dolan, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Matt, for having me. Now, you are the editor-in-chief of unclutter.com. Right, if that's not, you know, that's a hard a word cluttered to say. name right there. Yeah, <laughs> lots of T's and E's and R's. Unclutterer.com. Right, right. Unclutterer.com, somebody who um, unclutters. I've been here since 2007. Wow. I mean, that really yeah. is – it's it's a pretty common thing. It seems like as we are kind of a, the the age of consumption, everybody's purchasing, buying stuff. In fact, we have so much clutter, we have to buy storage units to hold the clutter in. Right. Stuff for our stuff. Yeah. How do yeah. we <laughs> – what's going on? Is this – is this an epidemic? Are we doing what's happening to us that we need to even keep all of this stuff? Is it like, you know, mental illness really or is it kind of, you know, we just don't know what to do? Well, it, I don't know if it's good news or not, but uh we've, you know, as humans, we've been collecting and keeping for as long as we've been around and it's it's, you know, a worldwide phenomenon. It's not just here in the United States. And it's because we, I mean, there, there are numerous reasons, obviously, as, you know, um, as many hours in a year. But mostly what it comes down to is that you work in some way. You invest in some way to acquire things. And then it's hard to let them go, um, even if you're done with them, even if they're yeah. broken, because y- you've at some point invested a part of yourself into that, you know, in, into that object. And so it, it makes sense. Um, it, I, you know, there, there are, you know, at the extreme ends, there are people who do have, you know, diagnosable medical, um, relation, you know, uh, issues that, that come from a relationship with their things. But for most of us, it's just, a a standard investment and we have to be able to let it go, whether that be, you know, time or money or, you know, whatever it is we put in right. that we finally say, okay, 
it's time it's time to let go. And for some people, it's easier than others. How do we know when you know it's a real problem? Well, I'm not eager to say you know <laughs> this is this is a you know this person's house is messy, and I do fear yeah. that my friends you know the minute I walk in their homes, the first thing they always <laughs> do yeah. is apologize, and I'm like, oh, stop, relax, stop. relax. <laughs> right, right. Um, but I I think that it comes down to a self diagnosis in terms of is it interfering with your life? Are you distracted? Are you frustrated with the mess? Are are you overwhelmed with the stuff? Because once that starts coming into play, then you know then then it is a problem uh, because if if it's causing you to divert your attention away from what really does matter to you, then that clutter is a problem. Yeah, that's the sign, isn't it? And and if it's making it harder and harder for you to be organized, then, you know, that probably is a is another sign. How did you even get into this industry, Aaron? It seems like uh I mean, I guess were you always good at organizing? Did you have the nice no. perfectly clean room? Oh gosh, no. No, I have I have the the tale of um, you know, stuff and I collected everything, absolutely everything, and I wouldn't let it go. You know, if I was in New York City walking down the street and somebody handed me a handbill, you know, that you got keep saved. That. That's a memento. Right. <laughs> right. And um it like it it just didn't it didn't make sense to me as, you know, a younger person to let it go. And it wasn't until after I was married and I have a a wonderful husband who did never give me an ultimatum and going into the marriage, he knew how much stuff I had, (laughs) you know, but he sat me down one day and said, look, this is what I would like with my life. You know, I would like to have friends over to our house. I would like these things. And, you know, and for me, it, it really spoke to me. But of course, because I'd had, you know, a 30-year relationship with my stuff, I wasn't, you know, the next day like, great, let me just get rid of all of it. Instead, I started doing what most people do, and I thought, oh, I know, I'll get storage, you know, um, space, and I'll rent that, and I'll put my stuff in there, or I can move some of the stuff to the car, you know, <laughs> or I can, you know, and I started coming up with these grand schemes until I was walking home from work the next day and realized the closer I got to home, the more tense I became. And, you know, I was anxious about, you know, just even getting into the house because I knew what was there. And that was the point at which it clicked for me. And I thought, you know what? I do. I want all of those things that he wants. Plus, I don't want the stress hanging over me. And so I, I started researching ways to help me let go, you know, what, what, you know, how can I get, what can I get rid of? What tools don't I actually need? Could I take a single knife skills class and get rid of half of the gadgets in my kitchen? You know, things, things like that. And, and so for me, it was somebody sitting me down and not playing any sort of, you know, cards on, it's either this, you know, it's right. highway or the highway, but just saying, this is what I want. And me being able to buy into that vision and saying, you're right, I, I want that too. And um, so now we have people over, you know, our life is, <laughs> you have is a life. completely different. Yeah. And right. you have um, less stress, I guess, going home. You, you, what's beautiful about that, Aaron, is you noticed your body was telling you something's not right. And you, right. you noticed it and you paid attention to it. And then even how you solved it, you you just knew that you needed to learn skills and tools, so you went out, started looking for this information. And then what I love about your, your website is anybody that needs information 
go to unclutterer.com because there's so many tools from buying a calendar, what kind of calendar to get, extreme minimalism, finances, furniture. I mean there's so many resources there. And that's what's great about living in this day and age is the resources are there. Right. And and like I said, you know, we've been online for close to eight years. So there is rarely a topic we haven't, you know, addressed, you know, since then. And we've had um, about 15 different writers over the years who have brought their perspective and their expertise uh, to the site and, and added to it. And, and so it's it's so nice because nobody writes in the it's my way or the highway. Yeah. You know, it's all okay. Here are some ideas. Let me throw them out there. Maybe one of these will will work for you. And and that's really how it comes because our lives are so are so different. You know, I'm a mother of two. I work from home full time, and my husband works from home full time. You know, no, there are probably seven families you know, <laughs> you know on the planet who have an exact similar setup. You know, and so what works for us isn't going to work for, you know, a single mom. It's not going to work for um, somebody who is far more creative than I am. You know, it, it's it's just we've all got to find our 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 best ways. And, and so that's what, at least with the site, what we hope to do is just get as much information out there to help as many people as we can because nobody likes that feeling of, of just having that, I refer to it as the cloud of doom. No one wants that hanging over that. <laughs> oh, thing. yeah. So, and and, and it, it's so visual, it. isn't it? Because it's, and if you're a visual person, it's even a heavier cloud, it seems like. Oh, right, right. It's just, it's omnipresent. You just, uh, well, and, and you just feel it. We were just talking in here about how even our iPhones can get cluttered and, you know, our, our mailboxes. So even now when it goes to technology, I'm sure some of the same principles you use just in decluttering a home or a closet or whatever could also be used with your phones or could be used with other technology. Oh, oh, right. I mean, my, I will admit, though, my, my uh, best unclutterer for my phone is my, my daughter. She's, you know, one, and if she gets her hands on it, goodbye, <laughs> all the programs, you know. But she just starts for most deleting. Of us, right. For most of us, we don't have those um, yeah. systems. <laughs> Maybe you need to rent out your daughter. Right, and exactly. People can <laughs> – they'll just clean up your iPhone right away. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but for for most of us, I think it's just – almost remembering that that it's there, that it's bothering us. I mean, how often do we go into our email inboxes and simply just delete a piece of junk mail instead of unsubscribing right. oh, you right. know, from, from it? Or, you know, just taking the extra two seconds because it's like we're on automatic pilot. And so sometimes uncluttering is simply just stopping and realizing, oh, this is bothering me. I could I could actually live without this and without this stress and you know, so in that case, even a service like Unroll.me, um, you know, Unroll Me, but yeah. Unroll.me, it just, it, you know, it gives you two seconds of time to say, oh, I don't need that in my life and, you know, taking advantage of those types of programs. It really, it's a, it's a powerful, powerful, uh, I think, empowering part of life is to finally have some answers and then to, to, to find a way to implement it in the, into our lives. We're talking with Erin Rooney Doland. Uh, we're going to take a break. She is the author of the book, Unclutter Your Life in One Week. When we come back, we're going to start to, to download ideas for you to declutter and uh, how to get stuff out of your life, out of your psyche, 
and uh, let some of this stuff go. More with Aaron Rooney Dolan after this break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you have some uncluttering to do in your world? Are you drowning in a bunch of stuff? Erin Rooney Doland is joining us. She's the author of Unclutter Your Life in One Week. Erin is also a professional organizer. She's editor-in-chief of the Unclutterer.com and has also um, been on, uh, contributes regularly to Real Simple Online, has also been featured in the Washington Post, New York Times, even Rachel Ray. She's been on the Rachel Ray Show. Erin, welcome back to the show. Are you with us, Erin? You know, we may have lost her. One of the things I wanted to get into uh, to talk to her about is this simple idea of just a system, just to have a solution, to have a tool, anything to get us going. Uh, For example, I just switched laptops. And um, so I had one laptop I had used for three or four years, had all my information on it. Everything's there. Got a new laptop, needed somehow to get all of my passwords in, get all of my same tools up on my laptop. And it took me about 10 days to get to a point where I could use the laptop as effectively as I was my old one. We are creatures of habit. And sometimes there's just simple little habits that uh, if we would make that one habit, I learned uh, teaching time management when I worked for um, a company called Franklin Covey. I used to travel the country teaching people to organize time and their life. And one of the things I learned is just do it once, right? Just do it once. We don't need to take our, you know, take our clothes off, leave them in a pile, then move the pile, then move the pile, then go wash the pile. Just when you're done with your clothes, put them in the pile to wash them. Just that simple. Then I don't need to move it twice. A lot of these decisions we don't need to make twice. And um, Aaron Rooney Doland is joining us now. Again, the author of Unclutter Your Life in One Week. Uh, Aaron, welcome back, my friend. Thank you. Talk to us about what are some of the things that we can do immediately that would help us to unclutter? Well, I think I think that the first thing everybody can do is find a permanent place for their house keys. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's true. How often do you spend, you know, waste, clutter up your time looking for your keys? You know, even if it's a simple hook right inside a closet doorway that, you know, that's hang them up. You're done. You know where they are. You're ready to go. Um, Another thing you can do right now is just, I mean, it's not even, you don't even have to move anything. You just have to sit down and imagine how you want something to look. And once you have a vision or an idea of how you want something to appear, it's so much easier to create that instead of, you know, starting a project not knowing where you're headed. Right. Um, and then another, let's see, another third quick tip I could give is um, simply having a coming home routine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in addition to hanging up your, your keys, having the process of taking the lunch out of your briefcase and pulling out 
um, you know, papers that you need and immediately throwing away your shredding junk mail and opening up those envelopes of things, you know, that you're carrying in your hands and writing actions on the top of them and doing things in a systematic way so that you don't, you know, come in, drop the coat on the back of the couch, put the mail on top of an end table, you know, and spread out because then you have a mess you have to clean up at some point and your energy level is Uh, already drained, you know. So have the systems in place and the routines in place so every time you come home you're taking care of stuff and then you don't have to address it again until you're ready to leave the next morning. And so I guess those three things, those are... Super Permanent place for the keys. Imagine, have a vision of what you want it to look like and come home and have a coming home routine. And by the way, I guess you could also, you know, when you really get advanced, then having a going away routine, you could have, right. you just start adding routines to your repertoire. Right. I'm a I'm a huge believer in having, you know, set actions. And I know there are people out there who are, who truly believe, you know, if you do something the same way once, you know, more than once, you are stuck in a rut. And I I, I get that for the big things in life. But for those mindless tasks, you know, feeding of the pets every night, you know, figuring out what you're going to pack in your lunch, when you have routines in place to take care of those things, you you just barely even think about them. You waste so little energy on them. And it, it frees up your mind and your time to really focus on, you know, those bigger and cluttering projects or, you know, the bigger organizing project or whatever it is that you actually want to do with your time besides hunt for your keys. It's such, I mean, and and I, that's the one thing I've done in my life is I have a place for my keys and they're always there and I don't have to do the run around and, and chase it down. Talk a little bit. I know you differentiate between simplicity and simple living. Um, What, what do you mean? What, What is, what is the difference between simplicity and simple living? Um, there's a big difference between uh, those those two things. I mean, you know, one one is just living in a way. Simple living is is living in a way by which you are free of distractions. You know, and simplicity is more about you know the act of actually doing things. Um, the biggest difference I see is between things like minimalism and you know simple living, in terms of minimalism for a lot of people is almost this, you know, ascetic ideal, you know, where it's everything has to be sterile and, you know, it's very much as limited as limited can be almost to the point of it being a challenge um, and having no connection to any object in the material world. And that's awesome for people who want to live that way. That is, that is truly great. That's, that's not me. Yeah. I'm I'm more of a simple living advocate in the sense of I do find things like artwork beautiful and you know I there are things that you know my friends have made or my children have made or an artist you know I I like that I want in my home because it it brings me joy when I look at it and you know and so I think that that's you know that's that's the difference is I'm just looking for ways to get rid of distractions I'm not advocating getting rid of things for the sake of getting rid of things. Yeah. You know, if something does have a purpose and it's useful for you in some way, well then keep that and and use it and but when it's worn out, replace it, you know. <laughs> get rid of it and and get one that will, you know, keep your life from being harder than, you know, it it needs, you know, it it needs to be. It's like that rusty knife 
you inherited from grandpa. You know, when when you know the man passed away, somehow you inherited it as knives, and they worked fantastic for you for many years. But <laughs> you know, the point at which they're rusty and they're unsafe, grandpa wouldn't want you to be keeping those anymore, right? You know, grandpa right. would want you to have safe knives. You know, and so it's time to you know, take those to the recycling center so that, you know, the metal can be recycled and then you can go out and you can get a knife that will work efficiently and safely in your home. You know, and so that's, to me, that's, that's the difference. And, and, and so we, we get a little bit of flack, I think, from um, some minimalists uh, because we do say it's okay to spend money. You know, it's okay to buy things. But the idea is you buy them when when you need them, and yeah. you might need them because they are utilitarian, um, or you might actually need something because it it improves your overall level of happiness in terms of you know a frame for your kids' artwork is fantastic you know and in, in, in my mind so well and you just hit it too if you enjoy art, you ought to have art. And, you know, if you enjoy, you know, decorating a room and that makes you happy, then you could also have a room that's decorated and feel good about it. Right, right. It's, I mean, and and like I said, I I think it's a personal preference to where that line is. You know, um, you know, for some people it is a lot closer to the aesthetic, the, you know, extremely minimalist lifestyle and then. For other people, they can handle a lot more clutter than I can without it bothering them, you know. And so I'm, I'm not really interested in telling people where to draw the line. Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in people discovering that line for themselves and being true to that, so that they're constantly able to do, you know, whatever it is that they they want to pursue. Yes, we, we're talking with Aaron Rooney Dolan, author of Unclutter Your Life in One Week. Also, uh, you got to go check out the website, unclutterer.com. Um, it really is a great resource to, to just, I think, just to see that there's solutions, there's tools, there's ideas. Uh, what do we do, Aaron, with kind of the overwhelm side of this? When, when we're starting to feel overwhelmed and maybe we don't know exactly where to begin – uh, do you have any ideas, any tools for us to kind of just manage maybe the psychological side of all of this? Sure. I think that I think that being overwhelmed is something that sneaks up on us. I know that sounds ridiculous, but how many times is it when you realize, oh, my gosh, I'm totally overwhelmed, and then you look back and you realize, <laughs> I've been overwhelmed now for quite a while. Exactly. You're like, how, you know, um, so it's it's taking that time to just stop and pay attention to how you're feeling. And I know that's that's a little touchy-feely, but, you know, I spend 15 minutes each morning drinking my coffee before anybody else in the house gets up just in silence. I just sit and I drink and I try to clear my mind as much as possible. And what I find is that what's invading those thoughts, you know, what's invading those quiet times are the things that usually are overwhelming me. Um, And so that's a good, you know, just a simple way to step back and say, okay, you know, this is, this is bothering me. And you asked, I mean, you talked about getting started, mm-hmm. and that's actually my favorite way to get started. There are a lot of people who are like, start small with one drawer or start, 
you know, uh, start on a Saturday and do as much as you can. And you know, those, those ideas are, are, are fantastic. My favorite way, though, is to find the one area in my house that is driving me bonkers. You know, it's the you pull into the garage and you see that mess every time you pull into the garage <laughs> and you think, oh, got to do something with that. And, you know, you walk past it day after day after day. And then finally you stop and you think it would take me 25 minutes to take care of that. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I schedule on my calendar 25 minutes to take care of, of, you know, that problem and poof, it's, it's, Done. it's gone. And what's fantastic about those things is one, it's obviously uncluttered and organized and yay. You know, that's, that's fantastic. But What's also nice is that it gives you motivation, um, and it also gives you the ability to see what else is bothering you. Okay, so that's out of the way. What else in my house is making me feel that way? Oh, there's a stack of stuff on the kitchen counter, and it's there every day, you know. And, okay, so that's my next move. I'm going to schedule 30 minutes to take care of this problem, you know, go through this pile, see what's there, and try to figure out, you know, it's like a puzzle, try to figure out why this is the area that keeps getting yeah you know and and so for me i i like doing the this is bothering me the most method of starting because it really gives me you know the energy to say look what i can do i can i can take care of this yeah and more bang for the buck really because then you got it done and and you almost it's kind of like paying down your debt and you're (laughs) you use that money to use that energy that's wasted stressing about the junk and the clutter and you use it on the next big project or little project. Exactly. Right, right, exactly. And um, I, I think that that's I, I think it's a fun way too. Now there are a lot of people who the feeling of being overwhelmed is too much. And um, for those people, I really recommend hiring a professional organizer. And um, I think it's because there's just somebody else coming into your space, mm-hmm. and they're this neutral party and they have the ability to just see things in ways that you can't. And it's so nice, even just sitting down and talking with somebody over possibilities, you know, your brain gets going, you're energized and, you know, it's not somebody you have to have an ongoing relationship with. Obviously people can, but, you know, meeting once or twice with a professional organizer can just be enough. You know, it can be that, that swift kick you need to, you know, just, just get moving. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, especially the ones who are trained through the National Association of Professional Organizers, you know, they they just seem to really know, what you know, yeah. what they're doing. Well, <laughs> you know? sometimes I mean, you just need the idea, right? You just need to know right. that – and I'll, sometimes I might even just need your, your, your way of seeing it or just simply your energy to say, right, okay, or- this is so easy. And in therapy, we call it normalizing where you kind of normalize the behavior, you know, people have it, we've got it, we can deal with it. And once it's kind of normalized, then it's like, okay, I'm not a freak show. Yeah. And, and we, then you take it on. What, what's, uh, what's about the average range that we would pay for somebody to come in and help us? It completely depends on where you are and how many hours you're committing to. And, you know, I, I know celebrity organizers who earn, you know, up to $500 an hour, but I've never heard of anybody doing more than that. But for most people, you know, they're paying, you know, 50, you know, $50 an hour to somebody and the person isn't there for very long, you know, or they're paying per project. And so there's a completely different, 
you know, scale involved. Or sometimes it's just a consultation on the phone. And, you know, that might even spark an idea. And, you know, that's, that's a $20 conversation at most, you know, like it's, it, it, there is a price involved, but at least what oh, I have yeah. found is it's, it's money well spent if it helps you to get past whatever the hurdle is. That's right. You know, and there's so many times when we are willing to ask for help, you know, um, because, you know, oh, I, I want to get in shape. I'm going to call a personal trainer. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, you know, do that all the want, time. Right. Um, and I, I really feel that it's the same way. I mean, as a professional organizer, I'll admit I have taken plans of my closets, you know, to um, my professional organizing friends and said, okay, I'm thinking about this, yeah. you know, and I'll show them. And then they'll say, well, have you thought about, and I'm like, oh, that's fantastic, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just another, another set of eyes to help you move along. And that's so it. I think... You know, I I, th- I think that they're. I mean, obviously, as a professional organizer, I <laughs> you're a little biased, I, but I'm a little bit biased. But, but it I, works, you know, yeah. But I I think that that extra push is always helpful too. Well, Aaron, we appreciate you, and um, really, just the insight. I in fact, I'm now motivated. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go hire a. I'm gonna just hire somebody to help me with this one thing I need done. Uh, and really, and once you're paying for it, I just notice a lot of times you get more done. We're, we've been talking with Erin Rooney Doland. Go to her website, unclutterer.com, and also check out that book, uh, great book about uncluttering your life in one week. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back giving you more ideas, more tools to live a healthier, happier life right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I, uh, I'm officially, I'm going to hire somebody. I've got to. They'll come in. We just have a, we, I think we are a storage house for all of the junk mailers, everything, coupons, and it's just too much information, and we end up making piles. Can't you see the clutter? Oh, yeah. Can't you look at something and well, we say... we just keep resorting it and then moving it and resorting it But and can't you tell it. I need this, I don't need this, and just mm-hmm. get rid of what you don't need? Yeah. But that's, I guess, the rub. You can't. Well, yeah, I can. Oh, you can. Yeah. But the well, family can't. But like, my wife likes coupons. Okay. And so, so get buried in all coupons. these mailers come in with coupons, and then you got to keep them because you're going to use them. And she uses them, so we save a lot of money. I mean, not as much as I make on Cole's cash, right? But we save a lot. I mean, just be realistic. Because I mean, right? if we're going to be real yeah. and really counting money, I'm like rolling in it. So that, but that's that's the deal. But she's so organized in so many ways. Except that's, I think, just one thing that overwhelmed both of us. Well, and the kicker too is is not that oh you can use this now or not. It's like in the future, it's worrying like, well, in the future, I could use this. This could come in, in handy. Yeah. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah, and then that's where it gets in the process of just being sorted, putting somewhere else, and then that gives the illusion that something's being done because right. it's in a different location than it was. And See, that's the trick. And the minute you off, the minute you put off the idea of fixing it, you're, you're just you know moving chairs on the Titanic. Now you're just playing the keep moving game. Instead of the fixed game. Once it's fixed, and like you were saying, you just sort it. The minute you get your mail, you throw half yeah. of it in the recycle bin. We just walk right to the recycle bin. doesn't even enter the house. And then you take your bills, and you should put them in the bill bin. and Or, or just, pay them all online. Yeah. 
and ask for everything to be online so we're not even having a paper trail. We've done we've done a lot of that, yeah. quite a bit of that, trying to just simplify it because you don't need all this paper. Yeah. And there's all these, you know, records are kept online now, and so you can have those types of things. If it's really important and you want to have a paper copy, you can do that. But now there's other technologies where you can uh, kind of simplify it, right. simplify your life. Even even to the point of we use some uh, document organizing uh, technology on the show with Evernote. Yeah. And you can take a picture yeah. and save it. I do that a lot with a lot of documents because it's essentially it's a piece of paper with a number on it. That's right. And, and you, you need the number. Print it when you need it. So I, it's on my phone. Well, they, they even have scanners now. You just take all of your bills, put them in the scanner. They'll naturally scan them and file them for you, and then you've got them. But you're not using any more space. That's how you could save space in your house, not just clutter. You can get yeah. rid of filing cabinets, things that used to occupy so much of your, you know, just attention. Oh, it sounds like heaven because it can overwhelm you. And then let's just say you have that and let's say you have a laundry problem or yeah. let's say you have any a yard problem or a holy cow. Now everything starts to pile up and you can't just keep paying for everybody to come do it. I mean I can't. You guys probably could. A lot of you probably like to go do the well, yard. I think there's something to be said for electronic clutter too though. I mean – I wonder if even falling stuff electronically is still kind of moving chairs around the Titanic because it kind of is. Yeah. Because you're just resorting, you're moving it to a different location, right. but you're not taking care of it. Well, and again, they'll offer you all of it electronically anyway. So if you need the bill and you want to look at the bill, it's right there. But I guess what you need, though, is you need to be tech savvy enough, have the same passwords, have the same access, write this stuff down when you get it so you can get into all of these accounts. That's my problem. And I couldn't a, even get into my account today. And have a system to get rid of it when you don't need it. Yeah. You know, delete it. You know, after a month. Because there reaches a point where even like on your computer, you can't find the files that you need because there's so many files on your computer. Yeah. You need like a two terabyte hard drive just to hold everything. You know, it gets crazy. It's funny. My phone. I just got a phone that's like 64 gig phone or whatever, and my wife got a 64 gig phone, and hers is full. And I'm like, what? Full of what? Full of videos. Well, delete. Well, yeah. But she'd then have to choose. Like videos she's taken? Uh huh. Like if the kid's playing basketball. Plug it into the computer. Me when I'm working out, stuff like that. Easter morning, I took a bunch of pictures and videos, went downstairs, uploaded them, distributed them to the ours, family, and I was way, done. Ours upload automatically. Phone. So yeah, they're not only 64 gig on her phone, it's 64 gig on my Dropbox, and it'll just keep. <laughs> So I, I have a lot of room on my Dropbox, and we hooked my wife's phone up to it, and that space is just slowly evaporating. Yeah. But it's because she, again, but she's the one taking the videos, and she knows what's in the videos. And they're important because that was that shot he made that won the game. You can't keep that on one device, though. So. You should I, just start deleting videos and see how that goes. Well, yeah, that would. Well, yeah. There's some videos of, like, me working out that, you know. Is that code for eating Cheetos? No, 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 no. That's oh. me shirt off lifting weights. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Too much information. <laughs> Why? Just we don't need to go there. Yeah, those videos should definitely be deleted. Yeah. Well, no, 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 no. Nobody should have to watch there, that. There can't be anything good well, now that people... in a Matt Townsend workout video. <laughs> but, that, but now that people can get into my email, I'm scared because what yeah. if they pull these down? Just not good. Well, I mean, not good for me. Great for everyone else. Get those out on the internet. Public indecency. Put that on YouTube. <sighs> Declutter time. We're going to do it. Hey, folks, that's hour number two. 
two hours. Hardly any pain. We'll take a break and come back with our final hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.